Bonjour. Please be seated. In the case of um, Canadian Council for Refugees et al. against Minister of Citizenship and Immigration et al. For the appellants, Canadian Council for Refugees et al., Andrew J. Broward and Lee Salzburg. For the appellants ABC, DE by our litigation guardian ABC et al., Prasanna Balasundaram. For the appellants Mohamed Majdi Maher Omsi et al., Jared Will. For the intervenant Association Québécoise des Avocats et Avocates. For the intervenor, Quebec Association of Immigration Lawyers, Guillaume Glitch Rivard. Civil Liberties Association. Jacqueline Swaysland, Benjamin Liston, Efrat Arbel, and Jonathan Porter. For the intervener, National Council of Canadian Muslims and Canadian Muslim Lawyers Association, Nazem Mitwani, Nuseba Al-Azam, and Danielle Kulin. For the intervener, Queen's Prison Law Clinic, Alison M. Latimer Casey, for the intervener, Rainbow Refugee Society, Francis Mann, Yalda Kasimi. For the intervener, British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, Adriel Weaver and Jessica Orkin. For the intervener, David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights et al., Cheryl Milney, Jamie Liu. For the intervener, Rainbow Railroad, Michael Batista and Adrian Smith. For the respondent, Minister of Citizenship and Immigration et al., Marianne Zorik and Ian Demers. For the intervener, Advocates for the Rule of Law, Connor Biltfell and Asher Onikman. Please note that there is a publication ban, sealing order, and restriction on public access on this file stemming from the federal court. Mr. Brower. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. Our core proposition is this. While Canada can enter into agreements with other countries to share responsibility for protecting refugees, it cannot implement such agreements in Canadian law in a manner that denies access to effective protection. The federal court, applying well-established charter principles, found that Canada has done exactly that, implemented the agreement in Canadian law in a manner that violates Section 7 of the Charter. The decision was based on a 20,000-page record that included evidence from over 40 affiants, including 11 experts on U.S. and international law. The record was the product of nearly three years of case-managed development by all the parties multiple contested motions and the out-of-court examinations, cross-examinations of more than 30 of the affiants. The federal court heard five days of oral argument on that record. The Court of Appeal, however, applied what we submit as an untenable interpretation of charter principles, 
to find that the case was directed at the wrong target and then set aside the federal court's legal and factual findings and substituted its own. I plan to address three issues in my portion of this morning uh, regarding Section 7. Uh, and after about 25 minutes, I will sit down and Mr. Will will take over on Section 15 and Beeriz. I'll address the Federal Court of Appeals treatment of the detention and causation findings and evidence, the applicability of the shocks to conscience standard, and the matter and role of safety valves. Given that the respondent now concedes at paragraph 61 of their memo that the Court of Appeals central justification for overturning the federal court uh, was wrong, that is that we had not attacked the real cause of the charter breach, we intend to rely on our written submissions and the interventions of Halco and Akadi on that issue, unless of course the court has questions for us. So let me move right into the first issue. It's our submission that the Court of Appeal had no valid basis for intervening in federal court's finding of fact, and it erred by doing so without identifying errors that were both palpable and overriding. I'm going to address the treatment of the federal court's findings on the risk of detention, and on causation, given their centrality to the Court of Appeals analysis. But I do note that they are far from the only instances in which we submit the Court of Appeals fundamentally misapprehended the evidence in the record. Mm -hmm. And I would just point you to volume two of our condensed book, which at tab BB responds to the Court of Appeals findings at paragraph 139, 141, and 142 of the Court of Appeals decision. Uh, as well as uh, tab AA, which responds to uh, or provides evidence that rebuts in our submission many of the factual submissions made by the respondents. So let me start, if I may, with detention. We say that the Court of Appeal erred by zeroing in on the federal court's two uses of the word automatically to describe how safe third returnees are detained and interpreting it in a way that's not connected to the court's Section 7 reasoning the pleadings or the evidence, and then intervening on the basis that the federal court had made an unsupported inference that all safe third returnees are detained. We say uh, it was not an error by the federal court, and even if it were an error, it would certainly not be an overriding one. What the federal court found as fact is that being returned to the U.S. following a safe third ineligibility determination exposes refugee claimants to a risk of detention, that's at paragraph 138 of the federal court reasons, and that this detention takes place, quote, immediately automatic and automatically, and quote, without regard to their circumstances, moral blameworthiness, or their actions. But is, is, that, is that accurate? Is, is it not discretionary within the American system? I mean, if somebody is legally in the United States and they come back across the border, are you saying that it's, it's been factually demonstrated that the American authorities immediately detained them? That sounds very strange. We are saying precisely that, there, that there is a default to detain uh, in the evidence of one of our affiants. No, 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 default is not automatic. De automatic means without exception. Well, in my submission, there are multiple ways to interpret the word automatic. Uh, one way to interpret the word automatic is without consideration, without assessing or balancing the pros and cons, simply uh, me mechanistically or reflexively. That's the sense in which we submit uh, the U.S. is detaining safe third returnees. So, so you're saying that the record indicates that if somebody is legally in the United States, 
They present themselves to the Canadian border. They return to the United States. It's clear that they're not illegally in the United States. They're detained anyway. If they're legally in the United States, so if they have, obviously, if they have permanent status, permanent residence status or citizenship, of course, that's, that's a different category. We're talking about refugee claimants. And if you take a look uh, specifically... Well, that's not what he asked. That's not what he no, asked. No, he didn't no. ask about permanent residence or citizens. He asked about... So, so let, me, let me even state more precisely. It, okay. Does the record show that where a non-citizen has come to the United States lawfully, hasn't overstayed their visa, that if they are returned to the United States having attempted to enter Canada, that they are, I, I thought automatically meant automatically, but, but that, that they are automatically detained. Is that what the record shows? So I'll point you to tab three of our condensed book. Um, what I, I will say is that it does depend on the status of the individual in the U.S. Uh -huh. I take that to be uh, a no, and, because it, you're, you've put it well, to us as a categorical. Not it always happens. And I'm saying to you, I, I don't read it that way. Right. And if I can just turn you specifically to uh, the condensed book at tab three, you'll see there there's an affidavit or an excerpt of the affidavit of Anne Wynne Hughes, uh, one of our experts, who sets out essentially three different categories in which the risk of detention varies. So I am, I am with you, of course, if somebody has a valid status in the United States, if they entered legally, uh, they are still in status at the time they come up to Canada, and there's no other issue with their claim or with their status in the U.S., then they are unlikely to be detained. But again, their, the risk of detention is there, particularly uh, for other categories. So more often, obviously, it's the risk applies at a greater threshold. Or a but I'd, I'd uh, say there's a very serious risk of being detained if you're yeah. illegally in the United States. In exactly a parallel way, that you, there's a risk you'd be detained if you're illegally in Canada. Sir, I mean, on what basis are you in this country? And, there's, and, 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 you know, it's clear they've entered on an illegal basis. Their presence is not in accordance with law. What would you expect? Well, if they are refugee claimants uh, and they are seeking refugee protection, then we would expect them not to be subject to an, essentially a default of detention. But if I may, uh, th there are two issues here, and I understand uh, that, that, you know, the concern around whether all detainees, whether that's what's meant by the word automatically, we say it's not. We say it's a default with very few questions asked uh, by, the, by the U.S. officials. But beyond that, whether or not uh, automatically, the use of automatically by Justice McDonald means everybody without exception, it's in our submission irrelevant to the charter analysis that then follows. And that's for two reasons. Of course, housing requires both, right? Both the palpable error and one that's overriding. On engagement under Section 7, of course, the court found that, first of all, the detention of Ms. Mustafa at paragraph 103 clearly engaged uh, her interests, her charter interests, but also that there's a risk of detention facing other safe third returnees. That reference to the risk is referred to at paragraphs 1, 136, and 138 of the federal court decision. And it's the risk that engages the liberty interests. It doesn't require that all safe third returnees be detained. It requires that there be a demonstrated risk that some will be, or more than one. 
So in our submission, that's enough to engage the liberty interest. And given the evidence uh, as found by Justice McDonald that once detained, the conditions of detention create a heightened risk of rapprochement, that engages the security of the person interest. Neither of those or engagement findings by the federal court depend in any way on detention being uh, automatic, whether in the sense imputed by the Court of Appeal uh, or in the sense that we say was actually intended, that is, reflexively. But I, I must say, I find the, the federal court judges sweeping aside of the entire system of immigration uh, appeals and the assessment of refugee claims uh, uh, to be extraordinary. It, it's as if you're, you're brought across the border, invariably you're detained, and it's as, as if you're going to be put on a plane the next day and sent back, even if there's, some, there's, a, there's a death squad waiting for you. That's not the reality. By submission, uh, with respect, that's, that's not quite what the federal court found. I think it's, uh, in my submission, a more nuanced finding. When it comes to sweeping aside uh, anything, in my submission, that's what the Court of Appeal did. And, and we need to bear in mind that Justice McDonald's finding was made on an extensive record of expert Well, did the, did the federal court really sweep anything aside? I mean, the federal court characterized the testimony in similar terms to what you're now characterizing it as, which is, uh, I'm at paragraph 136 of Federal Court Appeal, their testimony taken at its highest suggests that many, not all detainees, uh, not, such people are detained. So, so it sounds like the federal court actually seems to exhibit a similar understanding to the evidences you're now um, conveying to us. Do you mean the Court of Appeal? The Court of Appeal, rather, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, and, and ultimately, for the charter analysis, it, it doesn't matter, right? At, at, well, it's at just its that core, you, you, you somehow suggested that the Court of Appeal just swept aside uh, the evidence as well. And in fact, the Federal Court of, Appe Federal Court of Appeal and Federal Court of Appeal cast it in the way that, after questioning from Justice Rowe and me, you now cast it. So. Well, yeah, so let me get to. First of all, I'll finish this up, and I will then talk about the causation finding by the Court of Appeal, where we maintain there is a clear sleeping aside. Um, but again, I don't, I don't want to get into semantics over that, and, and I absolutely agree with what you're saying. There is, uh, by the Court of Appeal, in some places, uh, a recognition of what the evidence actually says about detention. But getting to the overbreadth and gross disproportionality... Could, could uh, I ask a prior so, question? Just sort of a question, Mr. Brower, before you go too far. Do you agree that there's no violation of international law, just to take a step back from where you are in your argument, that there's no violation of international law to enter into uh, a safe third country agreement and that it's consistent with the Refugee Convention? It's essentially the claim that's made in paragraph 43 of the Attorney General of Canada's uh, factum that uh, the return of an asylum seeker to a safe third country is a state procedure accepted under international refugee, refugee law. You don't take issue with that, as I understand it. It's really the procedures uh, that, uh, that, that follow the lack of safeguards under Canadian law and the lack of safeguards under US law. But you accept the that, fundamental proposition that there's no violation of the convention in, in entering into an agreement with a... We agree. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. The issue, uh, the underlying issue is whether or not uh, the obligation to provide effective protection, to ensure effective protection is being respected by the country to which Canada is transferring a refugee claimant. And our submission on the evidence 
is that it's not. So just quickly on the overbreadth, and then I'll turn to causation. Overbreadth, of course, and gross disproportionality do not depend either on every member of an affected population uh, or population affected by a law being negatively affected. So, you know, this court has said often enough. Uh, and Justice McDonald, uh, in fact, quoted this court in Bedford at paragraph 123 of Bedford to say that a grossly disproportionate, overbroad, or arbitrary effect on one person is sufficient to establish a breach of Section 7. So, Moving to the question of causation, and I'll be briefer on this, the panel also erred in our submission by failing to defer to the federal court's Section 7 causation findings, and that's critical because what the Court of Appeal uh, found, it substitutes by finding that causation had not been made out. Uh, it allowed the Court of Appeal then to substitute the shocks of conscience standard for the principles of fundamental justice, yeah, including but, breath and growth. But is it, is, it, is it a reasonable finding? Is it, is it a sustainable finding for the federal court judge to say that all of these safeguards are simply illusory? In other words, you take the legislation and you, you sort of throw it over your shoulder and say, none of that matters because it's all just illusion. And therefore, I won't take any of it into account. I mean, that, that's extraordinary. I, I find it astonishing that, a, that any judge would say that. Well, again, uh, what the judge had before her was an extensive record that included the details about, about what exactly happens at the port of entry. But let me, let me just go right directly to that question then about safety valves. We argue that discretionary mechanisms that purport to relieve uh, from unconstitutional effects, they don't belong in the Section 7 analysis. If anything, they belong in Section 1. Uh, beyond that, whether considered under Section well, so, 7 sorry, or Section that's 1, a pretty, yes. that's, well, hang on, whoa, 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 yes, that's yes, a pretty, sorry. that's a pretty bold statement. What's your authority for it? Uh, Bedford, Bedford and Carter, uh, in both cases, this court determined very clearly in our submission. I mean, this, this court has, this court, even in the context of the same statute, this, are you all, are you good there? I, I, I do have a cold, I'm sorry. Okay, no, no, no problem. Um, I mean, this court, even in, in reviewing this same statute, has, mm -hmm. has, has denied claims of right under Section 7 on the, on the, on the basis that uh, there's an availability of a stay application. So, you, take, you know, take a minute, sir, because... Hmm. Uh, I, I, my, my, I'll move my microphone away. Sorry, I'm sure that's definitely. No, that's all right. Um, so, I mean, what do we do with that? We, uh, I mean, I mean, you're saying that this isn't part of the Section Seven application. We've got cases like Feeble. Oh, sorry, you're. No, yeah. I'm good. Oh, okay, we've got cases like Feebles. We've got cases like Bo One O or whatever, however we're supposed to call that case. But where you have challenges to certain refugee, per you have you have exclusions of refugee, refugee protection. In one case, people who've committed a serious non-political crime outside Canada. In another case, someone who's involved in organized criminal smuggling. And, 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 and we have said that Section 7 is not engaged. We don't even get to Section 1. Section 7 is not engaged because the appellant is able to apply for a stay. So, so in light of that, how do you reconcile it with your fairly bold proposition 
that, no, 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 if anything, it, it really doesn't relate, and if it does, it's section, section one. We're going to sweep all that there. Well, section one is the place, of course, where minimal impairment and proportionality comes into the analysis. And in our submission, that is the appropriate spot to look at whether or not there are provisions that would mitigate okay, the that's, harm. But that's the not provision. an answer. But that's not an answer. I pointed you to cases that, yeah, yeah. Su that suggest to me something else. So it's not an answer just to say, well, this is my submission. But, uh, and I just want to add in there, under PHS, doesn't the court say that there is a risk uh, or, or there's a breach of the, the liberty and security of the person type of interest, but they deal with all of the exemptions and safeguards under the principles of fundamental justice. They go well beyond shock the conscience and include things like uh, overbreadth uh, that you're speaking of. But... PHS doesn't say it's a section one analysis. They place it firmly within the principles of fundamental justice. So what I'm referring to specifically is, uh, is this court's decision in Bedford. Sorry, but I'm, but I'm even in Bedford, yes. I mean, you have to look at the entire context in determining whether the effects of the provision actually do violate the principles of fundamental justice. So to go back to PHS, mm -hmm. they looked at the prohibition, but said that ministerial discretion saved it from the unconstitutional effects. It wasn't under section one. It was then, it, it was a part of the section seven analysis. So you have to look at the context. You can't divorce the section from the statutory context. Let, but I let, would let, like you to come back to the issue of the, whether the exemptions are actually illusory or not. That was the finding sure. of fact. And, and I'd like to know what it is in the record that, yeah. that um, made that finding of fact available to the uh, trial judge. To, to give thank full you, expression, yeah. Mr. Brower, to give full yes. expression of my, the concerns of justice, Justices Brown, Martin, Rowe, and Karakatsanis, uh, I think you need to address how PHS uh, speaks to safety valves, but you also need to address what are the safety valves you're speaking to in our case? Because I, reading, reading the factum, sometimes I'm unsure about what exactly you're speaking to and whether you're taking the whole of the scheme of the act into consideration, including some of the exemptions, temporary, uh, uh, residency permits and the like, family Thank reunification. You. Your colleagues on the other side will tell us at paragraphs 35 and following of their factum that we should take an expansive view of this and, as Justice Martin suggests, under Section 7 long before we get to Section 1. So thank you. I will leave uh, the, the question that is bothering you to my colleague, Mr. Will, who will come up right after me, and so that I can just get into the, the facts of what's happening at the port of entry and the evidence that supported Justice McDonald's finding, if that's okay. Uh, so the scheme itself, the act and the regulations is clear in our submission that there's no discretion. And I'll point you to tab six of our condensed book that includes evidence from UNHCR and the parliamentary committee that was studying the regulation back in 2002 and 2003, where both bodies had explicitly requested or urged that Canada implemented uh, exceptions for categories of refugee claimants who were particularly at risk, and they also explicitly proposed uh, the use of discretion. 
And you'll see there the response from the Canadian government uh, to the parliamentary committee's proposals explicitly declining to implement those. I guess, though, and you've... I'm sorry, but you have to deal with the exemptions that are there, not the ones that they chose not to implement. So if so, you could address specifically the yeah. temporary residence uh, permit in Section 24.1 of the IFPA and the um, humanitarian compassionate uh, exemption, Section 25.1. Sure, thank you. So the first issue uh, is in order to assess whether these remedies, the temporary resident permit or the HNC uh, application is practically available, we need to understand what's happening at the port of entry. Uh, because absolutely in law, an applicant could make a request for a temporary resident permit in the minutes or hours between being told that they're ineligible and being uh, sent back across the border. But what we know in practice from the cross-examination of the government's witness, uh, Ms. Spicer, is that in fact, the instructions are to apply the inadmissibility and eligibility provision and to immediately, as soon as possible, return the person across to the US side of the border. So in practical terms, the only way that a person would be able to apply for a temporary resident permit and obtain it prior to being deported would be to also get a deferral of removal, uh, which is in CBSA's hands. In practice, what we know that, is, first of all, is that neither the TRP nor the HNC is specifically a risk protective mechanism. They are, for sure, they are broad and discretionary, but they're not tied to a question of risk. But to succeed on either of those, what we need to expect is that the individual at the port of entry in that period of time between told you're ineligible and being escorted back across the border the same day is that they would need to put in, complete the forms and submit it and pay the fee and provide the supporting documents, a temporary resident permit application and ask CBSA again with evidence to demonstrate risk for a deferral of removal. And Can what I we ask know, you this? Yes, if, if, um, if they were advised that this was available and the reforms there, for example, would that change your argument? If, I suppose, but of course the provisions don't allow it. Right now the provision and the instruction section two or section 48 of the IRPA requires uh, immediate removal. But if that weren't the world that we were in, then absolutely. If there were forms available that were easy to fill, if there were interpreters available, if there was access to counsel, uh, and all the applications could be received, and if there were either a change to the law or uh, a, a general policy to not remove the person immediately and to allow them to remain, you know, at, at the border post while that application is being processed, yeah, then in theory, for sure, that, that, would, that would be enough, assuming, of course, that there were also instructions to grant TRPs in any case where it was demonstrated that there was a risk uh, of somebody being at risk of ruffle moth or sent back to the US or being detained in conditions that were unacceptable. Council, Council, the evidence seems to reveal here, and maybe you can point to us other evidence, but it seems that in this case, the evidence is that there is a robust detention scheme in the States, including right to counsel. So I understand your point that they are deported immediately, but uh, they are not deported in a vacuum. When they get to the States, there is a robust detention scheme there. 
And the evidence here showed that just one appellant was detained in the States. All the evidence in this file shows that, except but for one appellant, nobody was detained in the States. But Unless course, I misread the, the, the evidence. Sorry, I'm pardon? Unless I misread uh, the evidence, but if, to me here, it seems that they could contest uh, their uh, detention as soon as they arrive in the state. Well, I submit that the only reason that this case is before you with these particular appellants is because they were enabled, they were allowed to remain in Canada. The only reason that they entered Canada with ABC is that the, we arranged to bring a federal court stay motion in advance. We knew they were coming because she had family in Canada. Mm -hmm. We contacted the Department of Justice, contacted the federal court. This is in the record and I can provide you the site later. But Justice McDonald also saw this evidence. The only reason that we got a stay from the federal court is because we set it up uh, a week or two in advance. Uh, but for that, they would clearly, under the normal operation of the act, they would have been removed. But beyond the individual appellant here, the evidence that you have, you also have all of the individualized, uh, the individual anonymized affiants talking about their immediate detention on being returned to the U.S. Uh, and you have the systemic evidence from the experts, in particular Anwin Hughes, but also others uh, that we can provide you the sites for, that consistently uh, confirm that there are significant problems with U.S. detention uh, and with access to remedies once detained, in particular, but problems but with accessing counsel. But aren't you really counsel. asking us by, by saying that in a country of 350 million people mm -hmm. with more than 2 million illegal entrants to the United States a year, there will be some instances in which people are not properly treated. And the failures in a, in a country of that scale, with these many people, any, any, any even a handful of failures, means that Canadian law is somehow encompassing all of the operations of the U.S. immigration system, and any failure within that system means we can never turn anyone back because it would be contrary to the Charter. Isn't that what you're saying to us? What we're saying is that if Canada wants to rely on the United States as a partner for refugee protection, then at a minimum, uh, Canada needs to be, rely on, be able to rely on the U.S. upholding its obligations to ensure effective protection to those that we hand over to the U.S. If we have evidence, and we do, and Justice McDonald found it, that when Canada, under this agreement to share responsibility for protecting refugees, is sending refugees to a circumstance where they face a risk of refoulement, detention and refoulement, that's inconsistent. That's well, inconsistent well, hold, with well, the hold on, hold on. I mean, the record contains direct evidence of at least four reviews, right? The minister says we ensure continuing review of the United States on an ongoing basis. Mm -hmm. and, 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 I mean, whatever that means, the one thing is the record does contain evidence of, of a, of a of a review. There was a public summary covering 04 to 09. There's a report covering September 2015 to 2016. There's a report covering January 2017 to March 2017. There's a report covering March 2017 to 2018. And what strikes me with that is, is, is the reports 
were conducted more frequently when issues arose at the beginning of a new administration in the United States. Reporting became more regular. It reveals the minister's increasing concern with the evolving asylum situation in the United States. So what was the minister not doing that the minister should have been doing? Thank you. You've provided me with the perfect segue to pass uh, the microphone on to Mr. Will, who's going to address exactly that question. Is he so also going, going to address that. the earlier question that five believe, of us, that five of us asked? Okay, great. Yes, thank All you. Right. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. It seems that a lot has landed on my plate, so I'll do my best. <clears throat> I want to begin with the question about PHS. Um, in our submission, PHS is a judgment that was rendered without the benefit of the court's subsequent decisions in Bedford, Carter, and Apalanapa. And in particular, in Bedford and Carter, the court was at pains to clarify the law with respect to overbreath and gross disproportionality, and was very clear about which parts of the analysis fit in Section 7 and which parts of the analysis fit in Section 1. So what do we do then with B10 or B010, which is a 2015 decision, post-Bedford, post-Carter, and here's what it says. Um, this court recently held in Feebles 2014 decision that a determination of exclusion from refugee protection under the IRPA did not engage Section 7 because even if it excluded from refugee protection, the appellant's able to apply for a stay of removal right. to a place. So, so what do we do with that? Well, so yeah, the context is very important because what, what the court is, the stay that the court is speaking to in both B10 and Febles is the possibility under Section 112 of the Act to apply for a pre-removal risk assessment. And if it's established that the person is at risk, they will obtain a stay of their removal. That is an option that is not available to refugee claimants who are being turned back under the Safe Third Country Agreement. They are expressly precluded from making that application for protection, which would result in a stay. And indeed, in the federal court's judgment, she reviews the difference between the scenario at bar and the scenario in cases like Febles and B10. She's referring to a judgment of the Federal Court of Appeal in Tapambwa, but it's exactly the same scenario where the question is, what further rights will an individual who is in Canada have prior to being removed? And, and the federal court judge is exactly correct in distinguishing that situation because refugee claimants at the border don't have access to any of those mechanisms. Yeah. Now, you, you seem to put to us uh, a jurisprudential proposition that PHS is no longer good law because it has been overruled by Bedford. Is that your position? With respect to where safety valves should be considered in the analysis, that is the proposition. The other thing that I would say about PHS, however, which is important with reference to the decision of the Federal Court of Appeal in this matter, is that the existence of the safety valve was not in PHS grounds for not conducting charter review of the operative provision, which is how the Federal Court of Appeal took it. So there's an important distinction. 
even if you are going to take the safety valves into consideration, the question still remains, is the operative provision a provision that produces effects that are overbroad or grossly disproportionate? The federal court found on the basis of an extensive record that there are effects that flow from the operation of this provision that are inconsistent with the statutory objective and in some cases grossly disproportionate. And I, I, I would push back very respectfully against the submission that the federal court simply pushed aside the whole statutory scheme. Because what the federal court very aptly noted, which is I think um, the point that Mr. Brower was trying to get to, is that none of those mechanisms are available unless the person obtains a deferral of removal from the CBSA at the border. CBSA is under a statutory duty to remove immediately. To have access to anything else, the CBSA has to agree to defer. And as the respondents themselves put it, at paragraph 35 of their factum, a deferral is, an, is a remedy available only in exceptional cases where a claimant can prove a risk of death, extreme sanction, or inhumane treatment. In so other words- Speaking for, speaking for myself, I, I guess one of the things that I find perplexing is in trying to understand what, and we'll get back to this question that's been asked now several times, what illusory means in the mind of the just judge of the, of the federal court, yeah. when she also says resources, asks whether resources are readily available. So it, it, it seems to me that it's not that they're entirely unavailable, it's that they're available, there are hoops to go through, they're, they're, and the question is, is that saying, by saying it's illusory, is that overstating the matter for determining whether we're in a circumstance that's overbroad or not? Or as, the, as your colleagues on the other side suggest, these multiple mechanisms contained in the act all have to be read together to understand whether there is relief that's available in some way or another. And I, so I guess at base, what does illusory mean to you? And if it's, is it, the, is it a, perhaps a properly chosen word? And if it's not, is, that, is this an error of law, an error of fact, by not taking into account the whole of the act, or is it an error of fact? Where, where are you at on that? Yeah, you, you anticipated exactly where I was going, Justice Kassir. So I was, I was speaking a moment ago to the test that is applied to obtain a deferral of removal from the CBSA. It's an extremely high threshold, and it doesn't cover the scenarios in which this uh, provision produces unconstitutional effects. In other words, this, the test for a stay has for a deferral has nothing to do with whether or not the person's concerned will have access to effective protection in the US. It's a much higher threshold that would capture some, but certainly not all of the cases in which an unconstitutional effect is produced. So that, that's why the deferral is insufficient. What Justice McDonald was talking about when she talked about the remedies being illusory, she was talking about the availability of a judicial stay of removal from the federal court. And she was responding to the respondent's argument that, hey, look, two of the appellants in this case were able to get judicial stays 
doesn't that show that the remedy is practically available? And as, as Mr. Brower explained, they were extraordinary circumstances that led to these two appellants being able to get stays in this case. Litigation was thought through, set up in advance, they had counsel, and the vast, 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 vast majority of claimants who show up at the border don't have counsel. And you can't get a judicial stay if you're stuck at the border without counsel. And in the minutes or hours between removal, or sorry, between the ineligibility and removal, there is, in 99.999% of cases, no opportunity to seek a judicial stay. And, you know, the, what the respondents try to tell you, well, look, two out of three of the appellants here got it. But what we're actually talking about is two out of 4,055 cases that were returned in that five-year period. Can I, can, so, I, can I pull you back to this, whether this is a question of fact or not? Um, there's a long line of federal court authority, and may, maybe it's just wrong, but, but that has consistently held that even though Bedford set a new standard um, for Section 7 causation that wasn't established at the time of PHS, the position from, from B10 uh, still applies, and as a matter of law, disagree with sort of the logic of it, but that, does that not suggest that this isn't a question of fact, that, that or at least it answers the question of whether this is a question of fact or not? I'll admit I'm not 100% sure I follow the question, but let me take a stab at it. Again, B10 right. and Feblis and Tapambois are all cases where we're talking about people in Canada who have future statutory remedies available to them right. that will, by definition, take place prior to their removal. So th that's, the, that's the, the essence of the causation finding in B10, is that the removal is too remote because even though we're talking about the issuance of a deportation order, there's several other processes that are necessary before the removal order can be carried out. Here, there are none. Ineligibility, removal order is issued, has to be executed as soon as possible with no further intervening statutory processes. Can you just help me with a factual issue? There was a deferral order made for at least one of the parties. Can you remind me? Because there was a deferral order made. I take your point about uh, a high threshold, yeah. but it seems to have been met. No, um, I, I understand the, the, the language is um, perhaps foreign to the court, but the deferral is what we refer to as the CBSA having the discretion to defer removal. And it's that exercise of discretion that has that extremely high threshold that I, that I was discussing. That did not occur. There's no examples of that occurring so in was any... So, so it, the, the, I, I, the... I read somewhere that the officer deferred, did deferral till the end of the day. I just can't remember this, the exact circumstances, but that's all right. You can leave it. I'll, no, I'll no, look it up later. I, it, it, 
it, it happened in the context of the stay proceedings for the appellants ABC. And they had actually sought a brief deferral because Justice, it actually happened to be Justice McDonald who was hearing the stay, had agreed to hear the stay, I can't remember, later that day or early the next morning. But the CBSA refused to defer even pending a hearing of the stay motion. So um, ABC's counsel, Mr. Bell syndrome, had to go back and, and essentially pull Justice McDonald back out of her chambers in order, order to have the stay heard urgently because the CBSA had refused to defer pending the hearing. Thank you. Okay. Um, subject to any further questions from the court on the section seven issues, I would propose to move on to section 15. Well, well hold, hold on, hold on. Um, your, um, your friend, Mr. Brower said that I'd given him a really nice segue. Uh, will you be getting to that at all? Yeah, my, the next phrase of my sentence, Justice Brown, was going to be, um, <laughs> and the virus submissions, and I had intended to do them in the other order, but I'm going to begin with the virus submissions in order that I can uh, address the question that you've asked. Okay, thank you. And I will um, try to save a few minutes at the end for section 15. So there were the, the applicants, the appellants, brought two types of challenge in this case. They challenged the constitutionality of the regulation, and they also asserted that the regulation is ultra virus. Um, in, in terms of the ultra virus challenge, I just want to clarify a couple of points um, that may um, be confused as a result of some of the findings by the Federal Court of Appeal. Um, despite what you read at paragraph 179 of the Federal Court of Appeals decision, from the very outset of this case, the appellants argued that the monitoring required under section 1023 had been inadequate and they impugned the virus of the regulation on that basis. That appears from tab 17 to 19 of our compendium. So at paragraph 179 of the Federal Court of Appeals decision, we find a description of the case that can and perhaps should be brought in the future, but in fact, that was precisely the case that was before it. What is more, contrary to what is suggested at paragraph 75 of the Federal Court of Appeals decision, the only relevant documents that were missing from the record with respect to the 1023 reviews were the documents that were withheld or redacted by the respondents who invoked cabinet confidence, international relations privilege, and solicitor-client privilege. So it remains our submission that the record is sufficient to adjudicate this issue and that the Federal Court of Appeal erred in brushing it aside as if it had not been raised. On the framework for the virus review, before this court, the respondents now appear to concede that the legality of the ongoing designation itself and the question of whether the Section 1023 reviews were sufficient is a mat are both matters that can be reviewed on the reasonableness standard. For some reason, they don't want to call it virus review. But the question, even as they frame it, is whether or not the regulation and the reviews as conducted respect the limitations and conditions 
in the ERPA's grant of authority to the governor and council. If that's not virus review, I don't know what is. And I'm now getting to your question, Justice Brown. This, the current scheme um, for reviews is made up of two parts. Section 1023 of the ERPA, which creates the review obligation, and a 2015 order in council, which delegates that review function to the minister and requires the minister to report to the GIC, quote, when circumstances warrant. One thing that's critical to note here is that the statutory authority to make or amend the regulations implementing the Safe Third Country Agreement is conferred exclusively on the governor and council. It cannot be delegated to the minister and it was not delegated to the minister. Only the GIC can make or amend the regulations. Hence the importance of the minister's obligation to both review and report to the GIC so the GIC can exercise its decision-making function. In our submission, the minister and IRCC, Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, failed on both fronts. And I'm gonna reverse the order in the outline and I'm gonna begin with point um, 3B and the question of the minister failing to properly review the situation in the US. The respondents do not dispute that the purpose of monitoring is to ensure that US practice is convention compliant and that safe third returnees have access to effective protection. However, the monitoring that was conducted did neither of those things. We conducted a three-day examination of the individual who designed and managed the monitoring program. And he was very clear in his testimony on several occasions that they did not look at individual cases. Their focus was on the system as a whole to determine whether the system as a whole was adequate. In our submission, if you're looking at the system as a whole and you find that it's perfect or near perfect, that might suffice. But that's not what happened here. IRCC looked at the system of the whole as a whole and they repeatedly noted what they called areas of concern. Problems in the US system that may lead to denials of effective protection for safe third returnees. But they literally never ask themselves whether those areas of concern were in fact creating barriers to effective protection for people who were being sent back from Canada. Instead, they simply assessed the system as a whole and repeatedly decided, you know, this got a little better, this got a little worse, but overall it's okay. In our submission, that's unreasonable. Section 1022 of the ERPA expressly requires consideration of the designated country's policies and practices for a reason. The reason is that the whole purpose of the monitoring is to ensure access to effective protection for those who are returned. And in addition to not asking the question of what's happening to save third returnees, their actual analysis of the US system was deficient because again, they were not conducting an assessment of whether or not the US system was convention compliant. 
both the oral testimony and the documents are very clear that what they were doing was measuring changes in the US system to determine whether the system had deteriorated enough that it should be de-designated. But they had no standard for determining when it would have deteriorated enough such that de-designation would be warranted. When I questioned Mr. Burrill about this, he repeatedly stated that he could not speculate could not speculate over and over in the testimony as to when conditions may deteriorate enough such that action would be required. And the reason he couldn't speculate is because they weren't applying any standard and they certainly weren't applying the standard of no, convention No, sir. What, it, what, what the official was saying is that when you look at an overall scheme, you look at it in a holistic way and you exercise something called mature judgment which has no mathematical formulation. I agree with you 100% Justice Rowe, and I would submit that in exercising mature judgment in this case, the judgment that would be exercised is whether or not U.S. policy and practice is compliant with the convention. That is the question that they were supposed to be asking and answering, and they didn't. In his examination, Mr. Burrill stated very clearly that IRCC considers the UNHCR to be the guardians of the convention and that they preferred the UNHCR's views on convention compliance even to the opinions expressed by this court. However, in none of the monitoring reports is there any recognition of the fact that the UNHCR had specifically found that the practices that are impugned in this litigation are not convention compliant. In other words, the UNHCR repeatedly expressed its opinion that the one-year bar, the way gender-based claims are processed, and the way U.S. detains asylum seekers are all violations of its obligations under the convention. That was never considered. Nor did IRCC ever monitor what happened to any particular individual who was returned under the agreement. The UNHCR, when they gave their comments on the implementation of this agreement, they suggested that monitoring should be done, and indeed international best practices suggest that it should be done. All the respondent has to say here so, is that... So, so I just want to know where we're going here. I mean, even if we... Even if we were to accept your submission that the minister was not properly reviewing the U.S.'s designation as a safe, safe third country, wouldn't the remedy be then against the minister? I mean, how do we get to a declaration of virus from this? So in, in our submission... But just to pick up and point, isn't, isn't the remedy mandamus? So. Yes, a, re a remedy could be mandamus. The court could order the minister to redo the review or could order the GIC to redo the review. However, to, to take the old language from the court's virus jurisprudence, the review is a condition precedent to the legality of the regulation. The regulation remains consistent with the scope of the statutory power if and only if the review has been conducted properly. That is our submission. If I could just very briefly finish my point on monitoring individual returnees, 
again, the whole point of the exercise is to make sure that these individuals who are being turned back are being treated in accordance with their convention rights. But they never looked at what happened to anyone who, who was turned back. And the respondent's only argument here is to say, well, that's, it's not practical for, quote, obvious reasons. However, it is practical for a number of reasons. And we've given the court some examples at tab 30 and tab 31 of our condensed book, uh, demonstrating how readily the relevant information would have been available to IRCC had it chosen to look into the matter. The, the agreement itself contains the information sharing provisions that would be necessary to allow it. I am going to rely on our written submissions with respect to the fact that the minister never reported to the GIC. Suffice to say for the moment that the GIC has not had a report on the Safe Third Country Agreement since 2009, and there was never a single occasion following the adoption of the 2015 OIC that the minister deemed it relevant to report to the GIC, despite very serious changes occurring in the US. I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes on section 15. The result of the Federal Court of Appeals decision here is that the provision remains on the books despite not having received section 15 scrutiny. The respondent's submission before this court is that this court should now summarily dismiss the Section 15 claim on the ground that it cannot succeed. And I'd like to take a few minutes responding to that submission. Context here is important. The problem with the way gender-based claims are assessed in the US is very long-standing. And when I say long-standing, I mean it long predates the decision of Attorney General Sessions in matter of AB in 2018. We've given you some documents at tabs 9 to 14 of the condensed book that established the consensus that there was a problem before AB. And when I say consensus, I'm talking about the opinions of the appellant's experts, the opinion of the UNHCR, the opinion of the federal court in 2007, and the opinion of the Parliamentary Standing Committee in 2003. When the regulation was promulgated in 2003, the Standing Committee recommended that these women be exempt. Government of Canada responded and said, we're not going to exempt them. We understand it's an area of concern. We're going to monitor it closely. But they never did. In none of the monitoring reports between 2003 and 2017 is the issue even addressed. But Mr. Will, I have a question. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I don't want to go to the merits, but uh, before the federal court, you asked the court to deal with your Section 15, and you wanted also the Federal Court of Appeal to deal with it. And you say that they were wrong because they had a full re record uh, before them and they could deal with it. Can you tell me, maybe you cannot answer, I don't know if it's a part of a strategy, but uh, why did you not ask us to deal with Section 15? You are saying to us, please send the file uh, to the federal court. Is it to submit, uh, to have a new hearing on the same file? Is it to present new evidence? I would like to understand. Yeah, I, that's a perfectly fair question. Um, 
So in our, in our statement of constitutional question, we did state the question of whether or not the regulation violates section 15. The way that the remedies sought is formulated at the end of the factum, I think unfortunately suggests that the only option would be to send it back. However, um, it, it, it is our submission that the court could exercise its discretion to make the necessary factual findings to decide the section 15 issue. I hope that answers your question. Justice Although you put all you are included in your factum, a one-page uh, one-page submission in your factum on section 15, so it's right. that's that's true. Um, the appeal book does, however, contain the written pleadings from the courts below, which are very extensive on this question. But at the very least, at the very least, our submission is that the claim merits adjudication, whether by this court or by the federal court. The respondents um, have two arguments about why they say it's doomed to fail and the court should therefore just wave it aside. And I wanna address both of them very, very quickly. The first is their submission that section 15 protection is available in this circumstances only if the treatment in question would shock the conscience. That's at paragraph 82 of their factum. And I will submit to you that it is unacceptable to reduce a protection of substantive equality to a protection only against treatment that would shock the conscience. Contrary to the respondent's argument, the appellants are not asking US conduct to be assessed for Section 15 compliance. The question here is solely whether or not the Canadian law aggravates or perpetuates a pre-existing historical disadvantage. Just as in all of the Section 15 cases where this court deals with laws that aggravate or perpetuate mistreatment by private actors, the same scenario applies. And the standard is convention compliance. If the US is denying protection to these women in violation of its obligations under the convention, then Canada's decision to refuse them access to protection here has a disproportionate impact on them that aggravates or perpetuates a historical disadvantage. You know, that sounds to me like if the United States is not complying with equality, then, then it's, a, it, then it's a, a, an infringement of the Canadian charter. I mean, <laughs> you just said you're not going to do it, and then you said that's what we're claiming. I mean, if the United States doesn't live up to equality uh, as defined in the Canadian Charter, that's, that's the basis of the infringement. I'm, I'm sorry, Justice, or perhaps I misspoke, but what I meant to say was exactly the opposite. It's not a question of whether or not the U.S. is respecting the equality rights of these women. The question is whether the U.S. is respecting their rights to refugee protection under the Convention. And then the analysis of the Canadian law brings up the equality question. But we are not asking for U.S. practice to be assessed on the Section 15 standard. We're asking for U.S. practice to be assessed uh, in terms of compliance with the conventions. If I can take... Yeah, if you, can, if you can also answer Justice Garcia's question. Mr. Well, I've got a question that's going to pull you back to Section 7. I wanted to ask you before you sat down. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, uh, deaden your thunder on Section 15, but I, I have a, 
I have a question just to understand the nature of your Section 7 claim. And maybe it can be answered quite easily. Of course I understand that you've brought a substantive charter challenge to the, to the Act uh, and the regs, and, and you're using these four cases to make the demonstration you, uh, under the Bedford model to show overbreadth and, and uh, gross proportionality. But what happens if, and I'm speaking hypothetically, of course, this court refuses your Bedford argument, okay, and says the act, uh, the constitutionally, uh, constitutionality of the act itself is fine. And I've got PHS in mind. Is there any remaining charter, Section 7 charter challenge to the individual ineligibility determinations made by the minister's delegate at the border that would require us to go a step further? Or are you not pressing that? And of course, I have ABC and her daughters in mind, uh, in particular, because there doesn't seem to be a, I don't know, I don't know if I should, I'm allowed to call it a safety, safety valve or not, uh, but some kind of protection for them. So I'm wondering if, if, that, if there's a residual, as it was in, in PHS, a residual section seven challenge, and if so, if it's the shock the conscience test that would apply to that individual, that individual evaluation. Um, I'm not sure I can, <laughs> let me do my best here. Um, so one, um, the appellant's challenge before this court is to the regulation itself. We are no longer challenging the constitutionality of 102.1e of the act, so the, the challenge is to uh, the regulation only. Um, in terms of what's left, if the court finds that the regulation itself is charter compliant, our submission, um, to put it very briefly, is that nothing is left. The, the way the regulatory scheme operates now is without regard for individual circumstances. That's, that's the nature of the designation. The GIC chose not to create any discretion for border officers to exempt people from the operation of it. So, you know, unlike, um, unlike PHS, unlike Apple and Apa, unlike even any of the cases where we're talking about a crown exercise of discretion to bring an indictable offense, there simply is no discretion in the CBSA's officers in the statutory grant to the CBSA to do anything except pronounce the person to be uh, ineligible and subject to a removal order. So the only and that includes 25.1. That's right. The CBS, CBSA officers do not have um, any discretion to apply section 25.1 of the act. What they, about section 24.1? The temporary so, residency, that is the, the, the officer's discretion. So yes, they, they could choose to step outside of their role as eligibility determinators and issue a temporary residence permit. There's a couple of problems with it. One, they don't have to. 
right? When they're, if they're there doing their job, they're not doing their job assessing 24-1 applications. They're doing their job pronouncing an eligibility and effecting a removal order. But the other thing is the 24-1 minister's permit doesn't actually exempt them from the ineligibility. Right? It doesn't make them eligible to seek refugee protection. It allows them into Canada with temporary status that can be revoked or expires at any time, but it doesn't actually relieve them from the effects of the, of the ineligibility. To, to finish my answer to your question, Justice Kassir, the, the it would be a situation where in every single case, uh, an applicant would have to go to court to seek a Section 24-1 remedy. That, that would be the only possibility for getting around the, the, the scheme as it's currently written. In, in our respectful submission, if that's the scenario, where the only remedy is to go to court and seek an individualized Section 24-1 remedy, that means that the regulation it should be struck down under Section 52. Right? If, if that's the effect that is produced, that people need to go to court to seek individualized remedies, that's telling you there's a charter problem with the regulation itself and it should be struck. We are not saying that there is no way to design a charter compliant regime. There certainly is, but this isn't it. Thank you. Your time is up. Thank you very much. Thank you. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. The court, la cour. Merci, veuillez vous asseoir. Thank you. Please be seated. Mr. Klish Rivard, thank you very much. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. I'll try to be brief. I don't have much time and I'll follow my brief for things to be easy for the court. First of all, I'll talk about respecting the Supreme Court test on Section 7 following Bedford and I'll quickly talk about the safety valve, where it should find its place in this test we submit that it falls under section one rather than section seven finally that uh, 102 and related administrative acts do not really represent a real safety valve as pointed out by the appeal court so the first part considering that the real nature of the case has to do with section two the supreme court refuses to determine the real nature of the case by refusing to recognize the violations and to assess whether there was a violation to fundamental rights the court ignores the real issues according carter and bedford the canadian charter 
has to do with demonstrating violations and the causal link between the act and the violations. We need to show violations of the fundamental rights. That's how the court has dealt with these issues, particularly Ford and Carter. And in this case, the appeal court refused to follow the systematic approach according to case law and deals with this issue to determine that the cases were not dealt with at the right place, refusing to recognize violations that were demonstrated and confirmed by the federal court. So by ignoring from evidence these issues, it looks at the case as a whole instead of analyzing the real consequences of the violations as demonstrated in this first part of the test and goes very far rapidly instead of simply confirming what the federal court had confirmed as being violations. The court, the appeal court is based on PHS submitting that the provisions cannot be analyzed artificially in isolation. Instead of adjudicating the matter, the appeal court criticizes the claimants by saying that they simply attack the regulations without attacking the real issues. In PHS, the court recognizes that there's a violation. The court, as in Bedford and in Carter, does what the appeal court refused to do, going straight away to the issue of the valve. Or the appeal court did not follow the test as for PHS and Bedford and Carter, which enabled Council, maybe I'm making you go a step further. This morning, you heard that it disturbs the court when you look at the placement of the analysis of the safety valve. Is it under Section 7 or Section 1? Because you focus a lot on Section 1. How does this comply with PHS? Could you please uh, give us some guidance before your five minutes run out? Obliging the person invoking Section 7 to show the efficacy of the law compared to the deleterious consequences on the society, it means you are imposing the same burden as is imposed on the state. So when the court wants to know whether, whether there's a safety valve, the court is already in justification mode, verification mode according to Oaks whether there is any minimal violations. The evidence and the appellant show that there were violations. The federal court recognized the violations. It's at the justification level through security measures, through safety valves, like in VHS. There were valves that were working. Now, exceptions that could exist do not work. They are inaccessible and inefficient to believe that somebody who arrives at the port of entry could access PHS. The judge said not readily accessible. She did not say that it was absolutely inaccessible. That's not the point, if I'm not mistaken. But looking at the facts, with all due respect for the court, it's inaccessible, given that it, it's difficult to happen. Many claimants are deported without having access to, to this. It doesn't happen in reality, and unfortunately, it is inaccessible. Thank you, Council.
Twislin. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. The Canadian, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association urges this court to address the novel procedural and evidentiary requirements set out by the Court of Appeal. These requirements have already been applied in other cases, and they are likely to seriously impede access to justice for future chartered litigants if this court does not intervene. In my submissions, I will be addressing three problematic findings, the constant and firm objection prerequisite, the heightened evidentiary standard, and the uniformity requirement. First, it is requested that this court reject the Court of Appeals imposition of a constant and firm objection before an adverse inference is drawn. The court below imposed the constant and firm objection requirement without explanation and without justification for why it departed from this court's jurisprudence. The effect of this novel requirement is significant. It requires that litigants pursue and maintain objections to government non-disclosure and litigate the government's objections before an adverse inference can be drawn. On the ground, this will likely incentivize government non-disclosure and involve costly litigation that could delay cases for months, even years, and even when that litigation is not likely to be fruitful. In addition, as Justice Yakabuchi warned against in RJR McDonald, imposing this kind of a requirement to challenge government non-disclosure will result in courts not having the information they need to decide constitutionality of legislation. And of course, that's precisely the controversy in this case. The Court of Appeal found here that there was an inadequate record to adjudicate the case because, the government's, because of the government's claims of privilege. But instead of drawing an adverse inference against the government, the Court of Appeal dismissed the appellant's claim. The court found that the appellants had acquiesced to the government's non-disclosure because they didn't challenge it enough to meet the constant and firm objection threshold. This case consequently demonstrates the significant impact that the requ this requirement can have on the ability of litigants with valid charter claims to challenge infringements of their rights. The CCLA therefore calls on this court to explicitly denounce the imposi imposition of a constant and firm objection requirement and reaffirm its earlier jurisprudence. Second, the CCLA asks this court to reject the evidentiary requirements imposed by the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal dismissed the appellant's case in part because it found that the evidentiary record was, and I quote, too thin on key issues to permit responsible adjudication. Now, at paragraph 83, the, the court describes the kinds of evidence it believed would have permitted the adjudication of this claim. Acknowledge, and it specifically acknowledged in that same paragraph that the sources would be broader and more numerous than those that the appellants in this case could access. So although purporting to rely on Danson and McKay, the Court of Appeals approach is not consistent with these cases. Danson and McKay do not require that an appellant produce perfect evidence of the effects of a charter breach. They indicate that you cannot decide constitutional cases in the absence of evidence about the alleged effects. The Court of Appeals approach is also in stark contrast to this court's comments in Fraser, which caution, albeit in the context of Section 15, that courts have to be flexible with their approach to the assessment of evidence and taking into consideration that issues which predominantly affect certain populations may be under-documented or otherwise difficult to obtain. The Court of Appeals requirement that the appellants produce evidence that was not reasonably possible for them to produce created an insurmountable hurdle in this case, and it will for future charter litigants as well. 
The CCLA consequently asked this court to reject the Court of Appeals approach. Finally, the Court of Appeal requires universal harm to establish a systemic issue, an error that the CCLA argues this court to correct. Now, this error is illustrated by the Court of Appeals findings that the evidence that returnees were detained in the U.S. was insufficient because it only demonstrated that most, not all, returnees were detained. The Court of Appeal also found the trial judge's findings that the safety valves were illusory could not be maintained because a couple of the appellants had access to safety valves. This was despite the federal court's explicit finding of fact that these cases were exceptional. To require that there not be an exception to the treatment of individuals in order for a systemic issue to be established sets an untenable threshold that is essentially impossible for charter litigants to meet. The CCLA therefore requests that this requirement also not be maintained by this court. Now, we appreciate that there is a lot that is going on in this case, but we still request that the court specifically address these issues in your decision because a failure to do so could have dire consequences on the ability of future litigants to challenge unconstitutional legislation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nassem Mituwani. Chief Justice, Justices, I represent the National Council of Canadian Muslims and the Canadian Muslim Lawyers Association, who have intervened jointly in this matter to make two key submissions. Firstly, we submit that the threshold analysis into whether Section 7 interests are engaged must take into account the individualized perspective of the person making the claim. Section 7 can and should include protection against state interference of religious obligations. Secondly, we submit that equality ought to be formally recognized as a principle of fundamental justice. On my first point, it is important to note that the concepts of life, liberty, and security of the person, as enshrined in Section 7 of the Charter, extend beyond concerns of a purely physical nature. Section 7 also protects against government interference in a sphere of personal autonomy where individuals are free to make inherently private choices that inform their sense of dignity and autonomy. This may include, depending on the individual's profile, deeply held religious convictions. Protection of religious freedoms as a Section 7 interest is not without judicial support. For example, Justice Wilson opined in Morgan Teller that a law restricting access to abortion engages Section 7 liberty interests by limiting a woman's ability to make deeply personal choices of conscience. Similarly, in AC in Manitoba, Justice Binney found that choices regarding how an individual wishes to live, including their adherence to religious views that we may not understand, engage liberty interests under Section 7. Justice Binney's remarks in this regard were relied upon in Carter in Canada. Where the facts call for it, therefore, a court can and should consider the impact of state action on religious beliefs under Section 7. For Ms. Mustafa, for example, being continuously given food that did not meet her religious requirements and not having certainty of what she was eating was not innocuous. For her, it amounted to a denial of her ability to live in accordance with religious laws 
that she deemed integral to her faith. An approach that discounts the experience of the individual completely, and specifically in the case of Muslim plaintiffs, fails to appreciate the significance of their religious practice to their ability to live with dignity and autonomy minimizes potential constitutional protections. My second submission to this court is that it is, it is a ripe time to explicitly recognize equality as a principle of fundamental justice. Now, you have said to us thus far, so far as I can tell, that Section 7 is to be combined with Section 2A, such that you've got a new right called Section 7 plus 2A, which is different from Section 7 or 2A. Now you're about to tell us that there's a further right, which is Section 7 plus Section 15, which is distinct from 7 and from 15. Do you have any other combinations of rights that you would like to suggest that we make? I would submit that, in fact, charter rights do complement each other, and we do use charter values and rights to interpret... What's the difference between a charter value and a charter right? Uh, well, equality, for example, is recognized as both. Um, a charter and, right and what's the difference? I recognize, I understand they're recognized, but what's the what's the substance? How do we distinguish the right of equality from the value of equality? How are they different in content? It would the the for example, equality as a charter right is um, confined to a particular test that's developed in the um right and so what's the and what's the con that's the content of the right what's the content of the value that is distinct from the right i think the content of the value is that um state action which has the effect of furthering disadvantage on historically vulnerable and disenfranchised communities um that sounds a lot that's in different terminology that sounds like a lot like the right anyways i don't want to get you you know but, but you're using these terms when there's not really a clear definition that you're giving to me. So I don't know if there's, I'm kind of with Justice Rowe, I'm, I'm not sure if muddying the waters is really helping. I think that, I, I don't think um, respectfully that it's muddying the waters. I think that it's recognizing the intersectionality of um, well, that, That's really clear, right. okay. Um, and I think that there has been judicial recognition of um, the values, for example, of uh, equality in, in a Section 7 analysis. I also think in the examples that I've provided, the recognition that Section 7 really is about ensuring that each individual is able to live in a manner that they see fit for themselves, that they can make these deeply personal choices, um, that by extension does also protect an individual's right to um, deeply personal religious choices. Um, and the fact that that's a, another uh, charter right in and of itself doesn't preclude its um, consideration under Section 7. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Alison uh, Latimer. Yes, 
On behalf of the Queen's Prison Law Clinic, I want to develop the argument that this appeal presents the court with an opportunity to clarify that where repeated or a systemic maladministration of legislation is the cause of rights infringements, the legislation itself may be the focus of the charter challenge. This is because the legislation itself creates the legal conditions for those harms. Those legal conditions are both powers and points of discretion that the legislation creates, and also the measures not taken in the legislation to mitigate the risks of misuse or maladministration of the law. It's the law and the legislature that's responsible for the rights-violating environment that experience shows it creates. These should be viewed in my submission as latent constitutional defects in the legislation that are surfaced by the experience with the realities of how the statute operates on the ground. And because they are demonstrated and systemic in nature, these failings should be viewed as features of the statute itself, not decoupled from the legislation. And because doing that disrupts critical lines of constitutional accountability and democratic transparency. In this case, the federal court considered that the safeguards that were in the law were largely out of reach and illusory, and on that basis found that the law itself unjustifiably infringed Section 7. The federal court of appeal disagreed, and they relied in part on Little Sisters and held that where the legislation leaves room for discretion so that it is capable of being construed in a constitutionally compliant way, it should be upheld. But it's our submission that this principle from Little Sisters has never been entirely stable. Even in that case, Justice Yakabuchi dissenting would have demanded sufficient safeguards in the law itself to ensure government action would not infringe constitutional rights. And that dissent position is consistent with more recent jurisprudence of this court, and, and the case I rely on most forcefully is Boudreaux, which struck down the legislation imposing a mandatory victim surcharge. What's striking in my submission about the two judgments in Boudreaux is the divergence in how they address the impacts and the effects of the law. The majority pointed in part to the on-the-ground realities of how the law was administered. Two of the effects identified by the majority were first, the threat of detention, and second, the threat of provincial collection efforts. And with respect to the first, both the dissent and the majority acknowledged that a defaulting offender can't actually be imprisoned under the law, but what the majority emphasized were practical problems that resulted in the maladministration of the scheme that caused this threat of imprisonment. And some of these practical problems are analogous to the findings made in the federal court in this case. Those included potential use of police discretion, the difficulty judges have applying the necessary standard, the failure of provinces to fund fine option programs and poor administrative design of the extension system. None of that was found in the statute itself. And as Justice Cote uh, observed in dissent, those features were to some extent at odds with the design of the scheme, but the majority held the law to be accountable. And a, sim a similar exchange was um, repeated in respect of the second effect, which was uh, the, the threat of provincial collection efforts. Although provincial collection efforts are not contemplated by the criminal code, for the majority, they were a direct and known consequence of the surcharge that the code mandated. The dissent objected again in the Register of Little Sisters, but the majority weighed this when it held that Section 737 offended Section 12 of the Charter. 
we say that the majority approach in Boudreaux um, is the better approach. It ensures that the most effective remedy is on the table for litigants, a remedy that ensures that elected legislatures will constrain executive state action through the strictures of the law, not just leave everything to the discretion of the executive. Requiring the legislatures to sufficiently structure and guide discretionary powers is especially important when dealing with vulnerable com communities, such as the prison context where my client operates. Federal prisoners are uniquely vulnerable to systemic abuse of poorly constrained discretion, in, and it's only through effective judicial oversight that legal rights of prisoners and other vulnerable communities are safeguarded. Requiring that that oversight be accomplished on a case-by-case -case basis results in a profoundly inefficient use of resources, it hinders access to justice, and in my submission, it undermines the rule of law. Subject to any question, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Princess Mann. Chief Justice, Justices, Rainbow Refugee has one submission for you today, and I hope it's a simple one. And it's that the Section 7 Charter analysis must employ an intersectional lens when relevant, as in this case. And what is intersectionality? Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, who's a black feminist scholar and leading scholar of critical race theory, coined the term intersectionality in her critique of anti-discrimination law in the United States. And she explains intersectionality as a metaphor for understanding the ways that multiple forms of inequality or disadvantage sometimes compound themselves. So to have a practical example, in this case, treating race, gender, and sexuality as mutually exclusive categories of experience would hinder this court's analysis of the application of Section 7 as it's experienced by the applicants and others. Intersectionality as a concept has been well recognized uh, by the federal court and also within anti-discrimination law, but there's no stated principle or precedent uh, requiring this analysis under Section 7 when it's relevant. I will move quickly to the analysis in Whistler, where this court recognized the limitations of the mirror comparator group analysis under Section 15 and simultaneously highlighted intersectional principles. And in that case, this court found that an individual or group's experience of discrimination may not be discernible with reference to just one prohibited ground of discrimination, but only in reference to a conflux of factors any one of which taken alone might not be sufficiently revelatory of how keenly the denial of a benefit or the imposition of a burden is felt. Now, this same lens or similar lens can be applied in the Section 7 context, particularly when assessing how keenly the effects of the law are felt. And this court has employed this type of lens implicitly in many cases, uh, most notably in PHS, um, where this court found that the residents of the downtown east side who use intravenous drugs were disproportionately indigenous, disabled, 
poor, precariously housed or homeless, experiencing mental illness, and survivors of physical and sexual abuse. And by viewing all of these circumstances together in their totality, this court was able to conclude that addiction was not a matter of choice. And thus, the state conduct in refusing to grant the CDSA exemption caused the deprivations of life, liberty, and security of the person. It's also relevant to the analysis of security of the person, since minor intrusions on psychological integrity do not engage Section 7 of the Charter, but what be, may be minor to one group of persons may not be minor to those who are uniquely marginalized along a number of different identity points. And the same can be said for the effects on analysis under gross disproportionality arbitrariness and overbreath, where the focus must be on the individual who's experiencing those unconstitutional effects of the legislation. So here, the people impacted by the Safe Third Country Agreement are not just refugees and migrants, but they're people who may also be experiencing marginalization on the basis of their sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, and health status. At paragraph 23 of our factum, we've cited examples in the record of evidence of abuses suffered by LGBTQI persons that were held in detention in the United States. And for some of these people, they, may, they were forced to either choose a so-called voluntary deportation in order to escape detention or were so impacted by their detention that they were unable to effectively present their case. So here we can see how their experiences of detention are impacted particularly on the basis of their sexuality or sexual orientation or identity, and how that consequently also limits access to justice, both in the United States and in Canada. My final point would be that even under the shocks the conscience standard, which the federal court alluded of appeal alluded to in its decision, this is a high standard, but the intersectional lens would be equally relevant there as well. Thank you. Those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Ariel Weaver. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. My colleague Jessica Orkin and I represent the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, which intervenes in this appeal to address the Section 7 implications of the potential detention and prosecution of STCA returnees within the United States. And in my time today, I'll seek to address two arguments. First, that the question to be determined is whether removing refugee claimants to the risk of detention and prosecution violates the principles of fundamental justice. If so, we say it shocks the conscience. And second, that the court's determination and application of the relevant principles of fundamental justice must be informed by Canada's obligations under the Refugee Convention. And we rely on our written submissions with respect to the interplay between various charter rights. On the first of those issues, the respondents submit that the test under Section 7 is whether the harms to which STCA returnees are exposed would shock the conscience, and that only if that standard is met are the principles of fundamental justice violated. Respectfully, that approach would convert the shocks the conscience standard into a freestanding inquiry, 
and displaced consideration of the full panoply of principles that animate Section 7. It would also be contrary to the precedent established and repeatedly affirmed by this court. In Burns, this court stressed that the words shock the conscience should not, quote, be allowed to obscure the ultimate assessment that is required, namely whether or not the extradition is in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. An extradition or any other form of removal that violates the principles of fundamental justice will always shock the conscience. And that's found at paragraph 68. This test has been affirmed repeatedly, including in Lake, Fishbacher, and most recently, Nevson Resources. Now, it's true that in some cases, this court has framed the question as whether the penalties or procedures in a foreign state are such that removal would shock the conscience and thereby violate the principles of fundamental justice. We see this, for example, in Kaplan. But in other cases, the court has asked whether removal is contrary to the principles of fundamental justice so as to shock the conscience. And we see this in Barnaby, which notably was released concurrently with Kaplan. In our submission, the Burns approach has clearly not been supplanted or displaced. Whether a breach of Section 7 is said to flow from or result in a shock to the conscience, the shocks the conscience standard is not a separate test. It describes nothing more or other than a breach of the principles of fundamental justice. So the question to be determined remains whether removal accords with the principles of fundamental justice, including those prohibiting gross disproportionality and overbreadth. And that brings me to our second argument that the application of those principles is informed by Canada's commitments under the Refugee Convention. In Quebec, Inc., this court recently and comprehensively considered the relationship between charter rights and international law, set out a principled framework for considering international obligations in charter interpretation and affirmed that the presumption of conformity between charter protections and those afforded by international human rights instruments that Canada has ratified, including the Refugee Convention, is a firmly established principle of charter interpretation. Article 31.1 of the Refugee Convention prohibits states' parties from penalizing refugees on account of their illegal entry. And as this court held in B10, Penalties here include not only criminal sanctions, but also obstructed or delayed access to the refugee process. And this protection has, in fact, been expressly incorporated into Section 133 of the IRPA. This protection is grounded in the recognition that refugee claimants frequently have no choice but to enter illegally into the country where they seek asylum. They are not morally blameworthy in relation to that offense. But the upshot of all this is that a safe third country scheme is unconstitutional per se. It's not if it complies with international law, including the principle against penalization on that basis. It's perfectly compliant with that law if it does not subject refugee claimants to punishment on the basis of illegal entry. So Article 31.1 guards against what this court has characterized as grossly disproportionate punishment, something that it has said would shock the conscience of Canadians, punishment that is not uh, proportionate to the moral blameworthiness of the offender. It also under section, oh, sorry, Article 31.2 protects against overbreadth in the use of refugee detention. 
And the record in this appeal provides extensive evidence of widespread prosecution and detention of refugee claimants, perhaps not automatic, but certainly routine. And these contraventions of binding international legal commitments in our submission properly inform this court's determination whether the regulation accords with the principles of fundamental justice. Thank, Thank you very, you very much. much. Cheryl Milne. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. Um, I, along with my co-counsel, Jamie Liu, represent the David Asper Center for Constitutional Rights, Women's Legal Education and Action Fund, and West Coast LEAF. And we will, I will focus my submissions on the Section 15 claim and its treatment by the court of first instance. And I intend to make three key points. The first is that sidestepping the Section 15 claim affects the charter analysis as a whole. Secondly, that judicial restraint should not prevent a court from addressing charter claims properly placed before it, especially where there is an evidentiary record and full argument on the issue. And thirdly, the failure to address the Section 15 claim has particularly negative impacts, two particularly negative impacts. One, it establishes a hierarchy of rights by prioritizing, in this case, the Section 7 claims. And secondly, it minimizes gender-based claims in a manner that ignores the intersectional nature of the harms experienced by women in this case and creates further barriers to access to justice for equality-seeking claimants more generally. So in terms of the charter analysis as a whole, it's my submission that the failure to conduct an equality analysis analysis impoverished the Section 7 analysis by treating all claimants alike in respect of the impact of the designation. So in, in terms of the both detention and refoulement. We see that also in the respondents uh, use of the shocks the conscience analysis um, in the section 15 argument as well. So we're seeing a bleeding in um, and, and a distortion of what would be the section 7 or section 15 um, analysis that should be separate and on its own. It also alters the, the government's burden of justification and renders the section 1 analysis potentially incomplete so that um, the analysis is, is really premised on a partial analysis of the harms occasioned by the breach itself or the breaches. And, and finally, it affects the remedy that might be sought or the government response to a declaration of invalidity. If a declaration of invalidity is to lead to an appropriate response by government, then the equality violating aspects of the law ought to be considered and addressed. We risk having to relitigate the next iteration of the legislative response. Um, and, and indeed, this last point applies both to appellate review and is what the Federal Court of Appeal did, as well as the, as the, the Federal Court, um, to the analysis of the court, I mean, to the, to the analysis of even this court, that we need some guidance um, from this court in terms of the, um, the equality rights um, that have been addressed. So the, the second point was with respect to judicial restraint. And the preference for judicial restraint cannot be absolute. Issues of access to justice and judicial economy in the prevention of multiple hearings are also some, something that needs to be considered. And finally, that, that we not prefer one charter claim over another. The Federal Court of Appeal quite rightly said that there isn't a hierarchy of rights under the charter. However, by failing to address the Section 15 claim, in fact, what the, what the Court of First Instance as well as the Court of Appeal did was, was precisely that. The, 
Furthermore, pr principles central to the judicial role, including constitutionalism and the rule of law, require that in circumstances such as these, the court engage with all the charter claims to ensure access to justice and the supremacy of the Constitution, just stated in paragraph 22 of our factum. Finally, the, the, my, my third point, which is with respect to the neglect of equality claims. In fact, the, the, as I said, there, what has happened is, is the establishment of a hierarchy of rights in, in fact, in this case, so that everything is analyzed through the lens of Section 7 without actually looking at the differential impact that um, is occasioned on some of the claimants. It is also unresponsive to the substantial evidentiary record that has been provided. Now, Justice Cote asked um, the appellants whether um, they were seeking uh, an, uh, an or uh, that this court actually rule on the Section 15 claim. And it is my submission that it is well within the competence of this court when dealing with an overriding and palpable error to actually look at the record and be able to correct this error. It's my submission that the failure to address this claim, both the evidentiary rulings um, as well as the legal rulings are, are, are a, a profound error. And finally, the, the neglect um, is, uh, leads to a lack of an intersectional analysis, which you have heard from previous interveners, which is vital to, to, to determining whether this claim has merit. Thank you. Those Thank are my questions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Michael uh, Batista. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. The resolution of the Section 7 issues in this case require us to reach for a principle of fundamental justice. The appellants have based their arguments upon the principles enunciated in Bedford, disproportionality over breadth. Rainbow Railroad's opinion is that the appropriate principle of fundamental justice in this case is the principle of non-refoulement to persecution under the Refugee Convention, which should be recognized as a principle of fundamental justice for the resolution of issues before the court. Our position is that the heart of this case really is about the non-refoulement obligation under international law and the status of that international obligation in our constitution is an important and a necessary starting point for the issues in this case. This goes to Justice Kasserer's... So the, I beg your pardon, sir, the extent yes. and content of section seven varies whenever the Canadian federal cabinet ratifies a treaty. That seems to follow from what you've said. Yes, that's correct. It's the content of international law that, uh, that informs Section 7 and, and in, in and, our And therefore, the amending formula is completely undermined because the federal cabinet can amend the Constitution. That's the implication. It's, it's not just the amendment, uh, it's not just the ratification of international treaties uh, by the cabinet that informs the content of international law. It's a number of different sources of international law which together formulate a con consensus. There is conventional international law and there's justice. customary international law. Correct. And, and if you're talking about customary international law, it's on a different basis. But you, I don't think, have said anything about customary international law. You're talking about conventional international law. And therefore, I say to you, the implication of what you've said is that the federal cabinet can vary the meaning of Section 7 by ratification or withdrawal from international instruments. 
Well, forgive me if I misspoke, but I didn't mean to ground uh, to, to argue that the convention itself should be recognized as a principle of fundamental justice. The convention and the ratification of the convention by countries around the world uh, adds to customary international law. So my submission is very much that uh, not the non-refoulement obligation under the convention forms customary international law and that this should be recognized as a principle under section seven of the charter. So, as in the case of Shuresh 20 years ago, when another intervener came before the court and invited the court to recognize the non-refoulement obligation uh, to torture uh, under the Convention Against Torture, um, you know, despite the, despite the background of 9-11, despite the preoccupation of uh, states with national security, this court accepted that invitation and it recognized non-refoulement to torture as a principle of fundamental justice. The court held that no matter how compelling a state's national security concern is, refoulement to torture could not be justified. So what Rainbow Railroad is arguing today is that that principle, that finding, should be extended to the non-refoulement obligation under the Refugee Convention, which actually is part of customary international law. So what is the difference then between the two non-refoulement obligations, the obligation under the Refugee Convention and the non-refoulement obligation to torture? Well, the nature of the treatment, the prohibited treatment, is certainly distinct, but it's also overlapping. Torture is an extreme form of persecution, the intentional infliction of severe mental or physical pain, the definition of persecution under the Refugee Convention is broader, it's more amorphous, ranging from serious discrimination to arbitrary imprisonment to threats of serious harm. But there is compelling evidence domestically and internationally described in our written argument that not the non-refoulement obligation is a principle of fundamental justice. And this evidence includes not just the Cabinet's ratification of the Refugee Convention, but the principles presence in multilateral agreements, the evidence of states' belief in being bound by this obligation, the prohibition of states' ability to reserve, to issue reservations to the non-refoulement provision, and the references to the non-refoulement obligation, Canadian law jurisprudence. So today, Rainbow Railroad is just asking the court to take the principle in Shuresh one step further and to recognize uh, the non-refoulement obligation to persecution as a principle of fundamental justice. Thank you very much. Thank you. The court will take its uh, break for lunch. We'll be back at 12.45.
Thank you. Please be seated. Marianne Zorik. Zurich. Hmm. Or Mr. Demers, maybe. It's, it's Ms. Zorik. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the initial um, right. invitation. I'm, my apologies. No problem. Um, I'm going to argue the constitutional issues, and my colleague, Mita Demers, is going to be arguing the validity uh, of the regulations on virus and reasonableness grounds. So um, I'll just start with the, the briefest of overviews. Um, we have to go back to what uh, the impugned regulation does. It designates the United States as a safe country for asylum seekers um, who return, return from Canada to seek protection. Uh, oh, can the court hear me? Please go ahead, we, we can hear you. Oh, thank you so much. I wasn't, I wasn't certain. Um, so as I will uh, address shortly, the designation accords with fundamental justice and is consistent with the charter. Um, the constitutionality of the scheme is reinforced by IRPA's safety valves, different avenues of relief available in exceptional cases. And indeed, it appears that the US itself also has certain safety valves uh, not necessarily connected with asylum because the appellant Mustafa, who was in fact the only appellant actually returned to the United States, was granted permanent residence in the United States last year um, under the special immigrant juvenile status. So she is not at risk of refoulement. As the court has obviously recognized, the remaining two sets of appellants, the Homsey family and the ABC family, also benefited from these safety valves and remain in Canada to this day. The Homsey family are permanent residents of Canada and the ABC family um, remain on the federal court stay. Um, I do want to mention, because a query was raised with respect to um, relief that may or may not be um, needed for the ABC family, and that is that in light of the terms of the Safe Third Country Agreement, it's Article 8 of the, of our, it's, sorry, it's, it's um, I think I'm, gonna, I'm getting the terminology wrong, but there's a provision in the Safe Third Country Agreement 
that requires any return pursuant to the agreement. So it's under the heading timeframe for return under the agreement. Where a person has been in Canada more than 90 days, they cannot actually be returned under the safe third country agreement. And so as a result, what will happen in the Canadian immigration process is that uh, the family will get a pre-removal risk assessment, meaning there'll be an examination of the risk that they would face on return to their home country. Okay. Sorry, Ms. Zorik, just to make sure that we're, so that's in the statement of principles on the procedure, the procedural issues? Correct. And the status of that, the status of that in Canadian law? Um, because the return can't be accomplished, what will happen is in light of the federal court jurisprudence, which the court has sort of recognized exists about the need for some sort of a risk assessment, uh, if none has been done, some sort of process where risk will be like, if there's credible allegations of risk, some sort of assessment of risk will be done. So it will be done through the auspices of relieving the family um, of any bar to having this pre-removal risk assessment. That will, be, that will be the mechanism under which it will be accomplished under the immigration legislation. So they, the bar that they would otherwise have to having this risk assessment will be dealt with, and then they will get a risk, risk assessment um, as, if, as if they didn't have a safe third country. I'm issue. sorry, I still don't understand. The risk assessment, not for being returned to the United States, you're saying to no. their home country. Correct. So someone who arrives at the border from, from the United States at that point of entry, is going to be returned and how does this pre-removal risk assessment work to alleviate that? Oh, all I'm saying is in this case, because they got a federal court stay and because of the proceedings, including up to this court, have um, gone on as long as they have, it is not possible under the terms of the Safe Third Country Agreement to return them to the United States. So that leaves us with a refugee claimant family. And given that they've had absolutely no claim, no, no assessment of risk, they didn't get, a, they didn't, you know, they couldn't pursue, well, they didn't pursue their claim in the United States and they've come to Canada. We cannot properly now return them to the country that they say would persecute them without some sort of assessment of risk. So that would be the, the, the fact that they would otherwise be ineligible, as we know they're ineligible because they came from the States, that ineligibility will have to be waived um, through section 25.1 of the Immigration Act. And so the cons, what like the ultimate outcome of that will mean that they will get a pre-removal risk assessment. Someone will look and see as if they were coming from any other country. So it would come down to the risk in their home country will be assessed. Um, my apologies if I... So your position is that for the, the individualized applicants that have, that were brought forward in this case, everybody's covered. Is that, is, I mean, That's to factual. put no too fine a point on it. That's factually correct, yes. Okay. 
Okay. I'm so sorry. just just to be clear, um, everyone's covered because these there there are practical alternatives to being sent back, and I take it you're saying that the temporary residency program permit or the humanitarian compassionate grounds are the mechanisms through which they can seek an exemption. It, in the, per, the, the reason that she's going to get this is in the particular circumstances of her case. No, no I'm, I'm actually not oh, talking sorry. about oh, sorry. the individual oh, yeah. oh, here. Oh, in general terms? Yeah, in general terms. Oh, yes. I do say that safety valves, I mean, it's sort of a, a conclusory argument because we start from the proposition that the general return to the United States is, is, is safe. The necessary elements of what is required for a safe third country are met in terms of an international law. So that's where we start. We start, we're not in a Section 7 situation. We're not in um, a breach of the principles of fundamental justice for most, for every returnee. But I do also say, and we have argued, that in an exceptional case, by which I mean where the general presumption of safety, of return to the United States asylum system, say some policy change happened that puts really in doubt, or um, as a result of some sort of exceptionality on the part of the person, by which I don't mean the person has to be exceptional, it's that their circumstances could not have been sort of anticipated safety valves are available and we've gone through in our factum what those safety valves are but they are the safeguards they're not the first prong of the argument would you agree that the um the sbsa policies have to ensure that they are practically available to claimants i would say picking up on the questions that were asked about the illusory and so forth, um, that they are available in law, okay? They are available in law. And so any remedy that's available in law, okay, then it is not illusory. It might be, it might be, um, it, it might be that the person doesn't know it's available in law. It's possible that the person could come to the border and not realize that they could seek this kind of deferral or what have you. Those are possibilities. But the fact that someone doesn't know that something is legally available to them and also is practically available to them. How do we know it's practically available to them? Two families got relief through this process. One of the families, my friends have indicated there was this pre-planned stay and so forth. There's ABC. In the Homsey case, she came to the border. She was going through her port of entry procedures. She contacted a lawyer. Uh, they applied for, uh, they contacted the federal court and the federal court granted an interim stay. How can we possibly say that these safety valves are illusory if there they are? 
I guess, I guess the examples you've given us, though, are tied to charter challenges. So if somebody has litigation, if there's litigation uh, challenging the uh, constitutionality of a section, they can get a judicial stay. And is that the kind of safety valve you're relying on? No, that's not the case for, uh, that's not the case for um, Ms. Homsey. She said she was worried. I don't want to mislead the court, but my recollection of the record is she was concerned about a policy in the United States affecting her. And she came to Canada. And yes, it is absolutely the case that she contacted a lawyer and the lawyer then did uh, what lawyers do, which is communicated with the court. And which incidentally, the federal court is available 365 days a year for litigants to bring motions just like this one. Ms. And Zor so, yes. Well, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off to, with uh, complete your Not answer for, for Justice Karakasanas. But I, I get it's a follow up on her question that <clears throat> if you say illusory is belied by the idea that they were available in law, yes. well, then the character of the error of the federal court judge was not that, who said that they were not readily available and thus they were illusory. That was an error of law and not an error of fact or a mixed error of fact and law because she did not properly, uh, along this, the, your line of argument, she did not properly take into account the relevant safeguards. In I which agree. Case, in is... which case we don't have to go through the rigors of a of a palpable, proving a palpable or, or showing a palpable and overriding error, it's enough to point to the provisions of the statute that were not taken into account. I mean, I suppose it could be possible that, yes, I, I think that's the case. They've, they've pointed to nothing that suggests that there's any factual reason, factual reason, why such safeguards would not be available. One would have to come to the border knowing that they were going to ask for relief. Like you can't expect a, a safeguard if you don't ask for a safeguard. So I don't know what else to say. We do expect people who are coming to the border who are already in a safe country. If they're coming to Canada, they must know why. And so consequently they can make their pitch and so forth. And if there's some reason that raises a question about the sufficiency of the, of the U.S. system. I mean, it would have to rise to a certain level because we have a presumption of safety. And um, I feel like I'm interrupting you, Justice Kassir, but I wanted to, um, Justice Karakatsanis, I believe you had asked a question in respect of um, ABC's application for a deferral. So uh, if it would assist you, let me give you the, um, the tab number. It's uh, in volume five of the record. It's at tab 44. Her, her, uh, her, um, the grounds of the request, these are, there's notes, there's officer's notes for um, what they decided to do, which was to give a deferral to the end end of the day so that the stay could be brought. And the relevant portion of why she was seeking this stay is at page 1804. And essentially what she was saying is 
she expressed fear in returning to the United States because they feel they could potentially be removed by the U.S. to El Salvador. And then the officer addresses the fact that he says, there's no evidence to indicate that this would be the case, that the U.S. respects its obligations, and so on. So that was ABC's situation. Uh, I, I, I hope I hope that, oh, sorry, like this, that, that is this. Um, Justice Kassira, were you well, going to ask me? What you, what you just answered to, to Justice Carrick sounds very helpful. Thank you for that. I, I was just wanting, I'm looking at paragraphs 35, 36, 37 of your factum, where you describe the safety valves. Right. I just want to, I want to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing here. And you speak to multiple mechanisms to consider a claimant's individual circumstances in the exceptional cases yes. where their removal gives rise to risk. And so again, to go back to my question about the illusory, the trial judge, in your estimation, did not take into account the full range of these, and Correct. thus her conclusion that the the remedy would be illusory, it was, was mistaken in law because she wasn't able to measure how readily available the whole range of these things are. That, that's correct. And I mean, the irony is she granted one of the stays. That's, uh, yes. And, that, and I that's guess I'd, to add to that, or again, in the form of a question, the fact that the act kind of narrows the scope <clears throat> Of the of the print the ineligibility circumstance, in other words, it you know doesn't apply where there's there's fam there's a there's a family connection. It doesn't apply if you if you come to Canada by air as opposed to through a port land port of entry. Um, it doesn't apply uh, the, obviously the death penalty circumstance. All of this is they're not safety valves in the classical PMF sense, but their PHS sense, but they're narrowing the, the range for arbitrary, right. arbitrary behavior. Well, certainly even like the family uh, exception is sort of doing, it's uh, providing a kind of personalized, um, sorry, a kind of a class-based um, assessment of personal circumstances that would make sense of why you would allow someone coming from the states where they could safely have their claim um, adjudicated and considered, well, it does make sense that they're not going to go through a claim in the United States when they have a family member that meets the requirements. Uh, is it fair Canada. to say, I'm so, sorry if I'm monopolizing, is it fair to say that by tailoring, the, the, by the regime being tailored more than a, a, a blanket a blanket rule of ineligibility, but that it's tailored to, according to circumstances that, that are individualized through these various mechanisms, that this answers the Bedford overbroad problem. Qu quite apart from the shock the conscience, it, it, it does answer the, 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 the regime isn't overbroad or grossly no. disproportionate. And so if one were to take that angle of analysis, the Bedford angle of analysis, that these arguments would be just as valid. Certainly, and in fact, on a positive note, the eligibility in terms of family membership, at least, is something that is a Canadian consequence, right? 
so you're not facing the the fact that um, you get to stay when you have this these um, these relatives that meet the, the certain test. Um, I think also it, it may assist the court just to say there's ample, and uh, uh, Justice Brown, I think you were most likely referencing these cases. There's ample jurisprudence cited in our, in our factum from the federal court and federal court of appeal that talks about the obligations on officers when they're engaged if uh, a risk allegation is being presented that, you know, meets a certain threshold of seriousness. And then what they would do if that were the case, the, um, if that were the case. And I must actually start, sorry, make the point, which is that um, the context here is extremely important. We are not dealing with people who are fleeing from their home countries. It's like a vital aspect of the, of the context. They are people that are coming to Canada from a safe third country. So we're not going to expect that we are going to have allegations of risk. You'd have to point to what was going to happen to you in the US and make some sort of um, case for why in your exceptional circumstances, there's something about, about you, maybe, I mean, it's, it's hard to speculate, something about you that would make it that there's a, you know, a reason to think that um, the US system would actually not give you the, that the, could potentially refool you. And um, anyway, the cases that I want to mention to the court are Atana, and Tapamwa and Cretion. And all of these cases emphasize the fact that if the deferral officer doesn't do what the deferral officer should do, the court is available. We saw here how available the court was. An interim stay was granted in um, the ABC case and then, a, and then uh, like a, fu a fuller stay was granted. So the court acted the same day, or I don't remember exactly the hours, but they were ready, they were available to intervene in the exceptional case. Um, I think I'm, I'm going to go because I don't want to may miss I, the May I just intervene here and take you to um, some of the, the ways in which you present your case? The Federal Court of Appeal made many different statements, and uh, when I read your factum, I don't see you engaging exactly in the same analysis that the Federal Court of Appeal has done. So I just want to make sure that I understand your argument. As I understand your paragraph 61, you are saying this is a properly constituted constitutional challenge and that this court should um, be dealing with the substantive issues. I'm saying that it was appropriate to challenge the regulation, that it's a proper object of charter scrutiny, the designation of the United States. Well, how is that different than the question that was just asked to you? you oh, sorry. Well, um, a I simple thought yes would have been okay. <laughs> yeah, I just oh, want to make sure you're not, yeah. I, I want to make sorry. sure that you're, yeah, the, no, you're no. The, the, the question was, is this a properly constituted charter challenge? And then you said, yes. well, it's something else. Um, is it, is, no. okay. So it's properly constituted? Check? Yes. Okay. 
Okay, question two. It uh, brings us down into, we're talking about Section 7. In your factum, you explain the safety valves. In your factum, you explain why you think the shock, the conscience, is the appropriate standard. But usually shock, the conscience, can be a principle of fundamental justice. Nowhere in your factum do I see you mentioning whether or not uh, you say there is or is not a breach of the first stage of Section 7, being that there is some um, impairment of life, liberty, or security of the person. I could read your factum as saying you concede that and you're fighting on the place and purpose of the safety valves and shock the conscience and fundamental uh, principles of justice. But I, I, I want a clear answer as to what you're doing, please. Okay. Uh, we agree that Section 7 is engaged because of the security of the person and trust. Right. This court's jurisprudence has indicated when we're dealing with refugee claimants, that is engaged. All right. And so we're accepting that. I must say there's a little bit more of a question mark on liberty in the sense that there's really nothing in the scheme that is causing the detention. When the um, appellants come to Canada, when safe country returnees come to Canada and go back, they go back to the United States on the assumption in U.S. law that they didn't leave. So their immigration situation, whatever it was before they came, um, it's, it's not changed. Now, of course, sometimes they are bringing themselves to the attention of U.S. authorities by, by coming to the border. I agree with that, but it's not our law that's doing that. Nevertheless, the principles of fundamental justice, the, sorry, the, the Section 7 interest is engaged and the principles of fundamental justice, I say, uh, they wouldn't change either way. Okay. And so, um, and at one point, I would just like to hear you, however you're, you're going to deal with this, uh, your, your friends opposite argue that PHS has been, I guess, eclipsed by Bedford and Carter, and that what you put forward as the safety valves or the justifications uh, should be dealt with under Section 1, and I'd just like to hear you directly on that, please. No, I say that's incorrect. It's incorrect because PHS is essentially telling us if you're having some adverse consequence as a result of the legislation, if some other aspect of the legislation resolves the problem, you don't have a Section 7 well, 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 hold on. Which is it? Is Section 7 engaged or is Section 7 not engaged? You just engaged. told Justice Martin it's it's engaged, and then and then we look further into the analysis that there is a limitation of a of of a Section Seven interest, but now you're relying on PHS, which would suggest quite the opposite, which is if you have another process, then there is a remote there's a, a causal a break in the causal chain. There's an intervening consideration that means that Section 7 isn't engaged. And while we're at it, what do you make of cases like Febbles or Feebles and, and, and B010, which are post-Bedford? Um, I, I okay. mean, I really, I, I'm, I really don't know where you're at right now. I, I, w I was surprised by your concession that Section 7 is engaged, and I'm really surprised, given your reliance on PHF. Okay, so in Febbles, um, because the court sees another um, process 
in Canada that the, uh, that the um, I guess he was the appellant, could undertake. So far as they were concerned, he wasn't at the removal stage. That's faiblesse. Our appellants here are at the removal stage. And their pitch, as I understand it is, we're being removed to the United States and we will be at risk there of being refooled because the system there is insufficient in the ways that they articulate. So that's a little bit different from faiblesse. And but is it different in a legally significant way? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm shocked that you're making that concession, but that's your case, so you, you, you go. I'm, I mean, the court will decide, so if I'm wrong, I'm happy to hear it. But, um, you know, you might, you that, might, that is a distinction. You might read it, but, but uh, I'm not going to go through it with you. That, that, is a, that is a distinction between the faiblesse situation. And then in B10, B10 is actually about inadmissibility. It's not, it's not about, it's not about um, like refugee determination. It's about inadmissibility. And um, maybe this is a good part to go into um, the principles of fundamental justice issue. And the reason that... Um, well, well, deportation is not about refugee claims and extradition is not about refugee claims. But exactly. they're both about... Uh, no, you have to leave the country. Yeah. We're sending you to another jurisdiction. And what are the consequences that follow from that? So, I mean, the factual difference, of course there's factual differences, but are they, are they the, the differences that are grounded in principle and that should be the guiding differences? I mean, I mean let me, and, le and let me put that in a different way. I mean, are you arguing that inadmissibility triggers the charter but not eligibility? No, it's the opposite. Or the opposite, fine. But, but, but I mean, what's legally significant about it is Justice Rowe says, same, same result. Well, um, this court has decided, and it's in our outline of argument, when it was considering what are the, you know, everybody knows it's, it's trite, that you derive the principles of fundamental justice from the basic tenets of the legal system in relation uh, to the area of law. And in immigration, this court decided in 1992, and it's never departed from this, it affirmed it in Metavarsky, which I think was in 2005, that the basic tenets of immigration law are that a non-citizen does not have an unqualified right to enter or remain in Canada. And so we start there. We start there. But because we have people who are saying we're going to be at risk in our home country. The dynamics a little change. However, Justice Rowe, I don't disagree with what you have said with respect to the context because the second aspect oh my that my friends give no shrift to in this context, which is all of the consequences that they are asserting are making the scheme unconstitutional take place in another country. And that is why, if I may say so, that is why this court, in an even earlier decision than Chiarelli, in the case of, of Schmidt, said that we are not to apply the terms of our constitution 
extraterritorially. That doesn't mean we can't consider consequences in the Section 7 analysis, but because the consequences are for in another country, pursuant to foreign law, foreign officials, the considerations are completely different. And, and it isn't merely extraterritoriality. It, it is that, but, but the more profound difference is it is the actions of a state other than the Canadian state. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And so consequently, faced with that situation, this court has repeatedly affirmed that when, um, when looking at those foreign consequences, you're to be examining them through the perspective of whether that treatment, which could, which is, could be legal in the foreign country, whether nevertheless, comedy, deference, respect for different legal systems, nevertheless, the court doesn't wash its hands of the problem. It says, would those consequences shock the conscience? And that's why we're in the exact same situation uh, here, which is we are saying would or does having safe third country and um, ineligible safe third country agreement uh, claimants return to the U.S. to make their claims for protection there, would that shock the conscience? My friends have uh, conceded that international law allows for the return of refugee claimants pursuant to the safe third country agreement. But nevertheless, they're pointing to all of these factors, including rather boldly Section 15 allegations that the U.S. system purportedly doesn't respect. And in Kindler, Justice McLaughlin, um, which was, uh, well, obviously the first death penalty case, Justice McLaughlin, in her judgment, she said something very interesting, which is she said, I'm sorry, I like to give you the, the quote because it's quite, quite important. And I think it's applicable here. Yes. She said, um, well, she's citing first to Schmidt. She's saying the foreign judicial system will not necessarily be considered fundamentally unjust because it operates without, for example, the presumption of innocence, other legal safeguards we demand in our own system of justice. And then here's the wise words. For the same reasons, this court has emphasized that we must avoid extraterritorial application of the guarantees in our charter under the guise of ruling extradition procedures unconstitutional. And if I may say so, that's the very, that's the very situation we find ourselves in. In an exchange between, I'm sorry, one of my friends, I can't recall, and Justice Rowe, Justice Rowe, you asked, well, you're saying that we're to apply Section 15 to the U.S. legal system? And he said, no, no, no. I'm saying that that's what's rendering the Canadian provisions unconstitutional. Can I, can I ask you this? Because I've, I've struggled to think about how 
this language in these extradition and deportation cases apply when you're looking at a charter challenge to a statute. Kindler, Burns, Surich were all about the exercise of the discretion about whether to return someone and whether the um, whether it was, when I think of Burns and Surich, whether it was patently unreasonable for a minister to return someone where there was a death, uh, death penalty. And what the court says is that it's a balancing act. It says you look at all of the principles of fundamental justice, the basic tenets of our justice system, and the court says, but in some cases, it'll be so extreme that it shocks the conscience, which means that any other decision would not be pat would be patently unreasonable. Isn't it fundamentally different to take kind of the result of how the balancing would apply in an, the exercise of discretion by a minister and say that's a new standard that somehow ousts other principles of fundamental justice? I, I'm really struggling to understand the argument that this is the new, this is a new standard that applies when we look at Section 7 and a challenge against uh, litigation, uh, rec, um, jur legislation. I'm so pleased you asked that, actually, Justice Karakatsanas, because it allows me to bring to the court's attention that, in fact, Kindler did involve a constitutional challenge to the Extradition Act. So what was at issue there was, uh, as summarized by, just, by, I don't think she was the Chief Justice yet, just, Justice uh, McLaughlin, she then was, was that the Extradition Act was claimed, Section 25 of the Extradition Act was claimed to be unconstitutional because it would permit return to the death penalty. And she affirmed, the, well, the court affirmed in Kindler the holding in Schmidt that the principle that the that the principal principle of fundamental justice um, of return to this foreign legal system is shocks the conscience. I like to address. Um, the Burns situation. I must say it's not necessarily phrased as clearly as one would like, but in Burns, the court seems to be saying that, oh, if the principles of fundamental justice are breached, then it, then it will always shock the conscience. But I think the, the, the terminology or the, the, that statement in Burns has to be considered together with what comes in the paragraph before. Sorry, after, pardon me. So they're saying, first of all, in 68 of Burns, they're saying the shocks the conscience terminology is intended to convey the exceptional weight of a factor such as youth, insanity, and so forth. It should not be allowed to obscure the ultimate assessment that is required, namely whether the extradition is in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. But we know, we know from Schmidt and Kindler that the principles of, that the principle of fundamental justice is whether the surrender would uh, shock the conscience 
And then in 69, the court says, this language signals the possibility that even though the rights of the fugitive are to be considered in the context of other applicable principles of fundamental justice, which are normally of sufficient importance to uphold the extraditions, a particular treatment or punishment may sufficiently violate our sense of fundamental justice as to tilt the balance. So we know that deriving the principles of fundamental justice is a contextual exercise. And um, multiple elements may go into coming up with the principle of fundamental justice. And here, what the court, as the way that I'm, I'm reading it, that what the court is saying at paragraph 69 is, sometimes what we, what we have identified may get outweighed by an important factor like the death penalty and our um, updated understanding of it to the point where it becomes the controlling issue. And it then would shock the conscience, says the court, to return to the death penalty. So I take it that um, the court is not departing from its test in relation to foreign uh, foreign consequences. But when I read that paragraph, um, as you've read it there, what it suggests to me is that the court is saying there may be such treatment, and they give some examples of stoning to death and, and, and uh, cutting off limbs, that may be um, so shocking to the conscience that in addition to all of the other ways that we use principles of fundamental justice, it may be so significant that that's what is the deciding factor. But I don't read paragraph 69 as saying that the sole standard is shock the conscience. I read 69 as saying usually the applicable, normally applicable standards of principles of fundamental justice will be at play and sometimes the shock the conscience standard as perhaps one of them, or as a super added element, depending on the context, may be tipping the balance. Is that wrong? Um, in arriving at the standard in the first place, in Schmidt and even in, in uh, Kindler, the court considered um, the principles or the tenets or whatever, these legal notions that inform extradition. And then it arrived at this shocks the conscience test for foreign, for foreign consequences. What have we got here then for deriving? My friends are saying, oh, the normal consequences, the usual ones are the ones that will apply, meaning uh, you know, this, this pur purported dis uh, disproportionality. But they're not doing the exercise of if, if, if it is the case that there's some other principle of fundamental justice that ought to apply in this case in relation to foreign consequences, they've done none of the analysis. The, the, the disproportionality. So that's why the court will see that in our outline of argument, and uh, hopefully you have it, 
I've laid out some of the relevant considerations at arriving where I think you should arrive, which is to this shocks the conscience test. Namely, the baseline proposition of immigration is you do not have a right to come into Canada. The second baseline uh, point of relevance is that under international law, neither, neither do you have a right to claim asylum in Canada. This court explicitly and relatively recently in the Fablas case said that. You okay, don't have I, I, that right. I understand you're, we're now so, in the details of that, but right. I'm trying to get the framework from your factum and from your arguments. Um, it would seem to me that, uh, and with what you've cited, that under the Section 7 analysis, it's completely appropriate, you're saying, to look at a principle of fundamental justice like overbreadth about gross disproportion, but you also refer to these cases and shock the conscience, or do you say something different, which is no. because you only look to shock the conscience? That's what I'm trying to get as a legal proposition. Oh, I see. What I'm saying is that um, Section 7 is contextual. And so when you are deriving the relevant principle of fundamental justice, you have to look at these basic tenets. You don't start with the principle of fundamental justice of overbreadth and, and disproportionality, which arises and exists in the domestic context. When you're looking at a foreign context, you can't be getting into overbreadth and disproportionality because we're looking at treatments in other countries. There's no place to put comity, respect for difference, and, and also the court's natural and obviously, um, I mean, le legitimate concerns about extraterritoriality and so forth. So when you're considering these various tenets to arrive at to, to, um, to, to come, like maybe we could do that analysis. The appellants have not done that analysis. I've offered to the court the kind of ingredients for how you're going to get to this principle. And ultimately, seeing as you have no right to come into Canada, you have no right to make a refugee claim in Canada, you do have a right not to be refooled um, uh, to, you know, to, to, to persecution and so forth, although it's, it's qualified, but let's just say in general terms, you, you, you know, that's what international refugee law is saying. You're not going to arrive at gross proportionality and, uh, sorry, gross disproportionality and overbreadth if you do the contextual exercise of what the, what the standard should be. Of but determining isn't it, isn't, isn't it true, as Justice Martin suggests, that, that there's, first of all, we're attacking Canadian legislation here. And <clears throat> there's something, it's, a, it's the whole of the scheme that's being attacked. And your own defense of the scheme requires us to focus on how it is not overbroad. In many respects, you're shape, you've shaped your argument around safety valves and the like to convince us that the, the, the statute does comport with that kind of principle of 
fundamental justice, which may well mean at the end of the day that the consequence of sending someone back to the United States would not shock the conscience and would be in keeping with um, presumptions that international law is, uh, applies and is being respected. But it seems um, that the, the nature of the the nature of the constitutional ca challenge under Section 7 invites an inquiry about the breadth of this statute and whether it's overbroad. And, and it seems to me that your own arguments leave room for that. And it might be wise to exhaust that avenue of contestation in, in, in the way that you've suggested in your, in your factum. Um. I'm saying that the scheme is also not overbroad or grossly dispropor disproportionate, but I'm also saying that if you're going to be looking at a return to the U.S. refugee system, that is kind of the standard you should be applying because what is missing if in my submission, what is missing from using the usual principles of fundamental justice is where in that analysis of this overbreadth and so on, are you putting in deference to the foreign legal system? And the, the notions of comity and also, are we not then saying, oh, the appellants are absolutely right to to be making Section 15 arguments or Section 7 arguments or Section 12 arguments, as happens in extradition, in relation to these returns. That's what we're going to be facing. That's the problem, that there's no room for this, the, the, the problem that we hear, that we have here, the context that we have here, which is this is not a return to the country of persecution. This is a return to the foreign legal system. And so consequently, you need some kind of, um, well, that's what you need. You need shocks the conscience because you should be starting with the presumption of deference to the foreign legal system, which uh, in, in Ward, it's an American legal system. So the court, I mean, strongly said that when you have a democracy like the United States, uh, you have to presume the foreign legal system is fair and just, and if you want to displace that, you you know you have an up uphill burden, and that's the trouble. That's the trouble with any other sort of um, construct. It's not looking at the central problem, which is it's 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 the American law and officials that are administering this. Why wouldn't, so why wouldn't we look at the principle of fundamental justice invoked by the Charter claimant? Right? Why wouldn't we just do that? Because you can, you know, Section Seven can be a can be a, a Rubik's oh. cube. You, so you, but at the end of the day, the Charter claimant has invoked the principle of overbreadth. That's the way we should analyze the case and see whether it complies with the principle of fundamental justice of overbreadth. Isn't it as simple as that? That is an absolutely fair outcome, Justice Jamal. Well, wait, Can no, I ask you on. this? this uh, but I'm, I'm looking at, because I, I think we're getting into a swamp here. Because Justice Martin, and it seems Justice Jamal has said, are you willing to concede on the record 
that shocks the conscience is not the relevant uh, yardstick here. And they seem to be extracting, believe they've extracted from them a concession to that effect. Whereas where I look at paragraphs 64 to 71 of your, of your factum, I see quite the opposite, that you say shocks the conscience is the relevant standard here. Have I misunderstood that? No, you have not. And in response to Justice Jamal's question, if the appellants have framed their challenge poorly, then the consequence could be that the court will say that even on their own terms, it, their, their, their arguments don't succeed. Can I ask you this? Would it be appropriate um, to consider the f uh, comedy and respect and a certain tolerance that a foreign state might have a, a, a system that might not, um, might not uh, be charter compliant in, in Canada? Would that be an appropriate consideration if you were at section one? Because oh. you're weighing the benefits, uh, including benefits dealing with comedy and respect. Gosh, Justice Karakatsanis, I, I, I honestly feel like it's um, a law school exam question that you've posed for me there, but um, I think I'd have to say no, because the problem is then, um, like in the extradition context, like what is to stop if the ordinary principles still apply, if they still apply, then why would they not apply to extradition as well where we have foreign but consequences? I, I, so what, that, that's, that's where I think that the problem is, it may be like a technical and, problem. And maybe it's just me, but I still, think that there is a principal distinction between the review of the exercise, the judicial review of the exercise of discretion by a decision maker and a charter challenge to legislation. Um, you know, in Burns, in Burns, when the yes. court was looking at the situation of Burns and Rafi, the court did not say, you know, in this case, we think it would shock the conscience to return Burns and Rafi. The court said, globally, this is what happens when you have the death penalty. But and, if and you're, so, you're talking about Burns, Burns in paragraph 68, yes. I think answers the question. So Burns is a case of an individual act of discretion in terms of returning to a foreign jurisdiction, which would raise some of the exact principles that you're concerned about, comedy, sovereignty, respect. But Burns says the following, the terminology should not be allowed to obscure the ultimate assessment that is required, namely whether or not the extradition is in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. The rule is not that departures from fundamental justice are to be tolerated unless in a particular case it shocks the conscience. An extradition that violates the principles of fundamental justice will always shock the conscience. It suggests to me there that the principles are broader than the shock the conscience standard and that, um, that and what you're suggesting that there is a unique um, uh, standard that applies even to a constitutional challenge of an um, extradition 
extradition-related provision um, has to be governed by shock the conscience. I just don't see any judicial authority for that proposition. Well, of course we have, have the opportunity in this case to, well, the, the court will decide that, but well, this well, is- Well, um, hold on. Like, you have to be clearer about this. I'm sorry. Okay. Is it a statement of existing law or are you asking us to change the law? I'm saying when you're returning to foreign con consequences, and we are following mainly jurisprudence from the extradition context because that's the jurisprudence that, you know, Well, well you just had jurisprudence cited to you. You've just had jurisprudence cited to you. What do you say about that? What I say is that in Burns, the court said there's a new element here that has forced us to rethink where the line is drawn. And the new element, the death penalty element, has overwhelmed the analysis. So, Rick, at this time, the court will take a five minutes break. Thank you. Please be seated. Mrs. Zorik. All right. I, uh, thank excuse me. I just have a question on the um, about the factual context. Um, this applies only to people entering. Are you on? I'm sorry. I, I'm... I believe so. Okay. I hope so. Um, this applies to people entering at points of entry, not That's those correct. arriving by air and other and and otherwise. I'm trying right. to get a sense of how many how many people like what percentage of the people who try to enter Canada from the United States are actually caught at point of entry as opposed to coming from the United States by plane or by boat. I just right. didn't understand the factual context there. Okay. Um, I can give you a statistic, Justice Karagatsanis, over the five And why just period? point of entry? Oh, well, I mean, it certainly could be broadened but it was it was decided that ports points of entry i mean they're just factually easier to know where you're coming from because if for example and, and it's it's very clear when you're at a port of entry that you're coming from the united states so that's sort of the the arrangement statistically um over the five-year period between 20 i don't know if this is adding up to five years 2014 and 20 
18, 4,000 people, that's like a statistics, were returned under the safe third country um, agreement. Um, Any idea of what percentage that is? I saw that number, I just didn't, I couldn't oh. put it in context. But to the number that were like Come in other, other than by point, point of entry. Oh, no, I'm sorry, I don't have a number for that. Thank you. My apologies, Justice Kirtsanis. Um I am really far into my colleague's time, and barring any further questions, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague to deal with the remaining issues. Chief Justice, Justices, I will uh, focus on the reasonableness of the continued designation of the U.S. I will not address the, all issues pertaining to the re remaining of our factum. Of course, we don't take issue uh, with the federal courts and the federal court of appeals finding on that point. And of course, we don't see any reason to depart from the reasonableness standard. Our position relies on four closely related propositions. I will list them and then expand on them. First, the SCCA applies only to those claimants who come up from the US up to the land border, land border port of entry to claim protection. This will have an impact uh, on the remaining points that I will address. Second point, under section 102 sub 1A of the act, the criteria for designation is whether protection against refoulement is guaranteed for STCA returnees. So you see already that the first and second points are closely related. This entails that not all convention rights need be guaranteed for the US to be designated as a safe country. Policies and practices and the US human rights record are factors for determining whether the criteria is met. And there's a huge difference between the impact or effect of section 102 sub 1 and section 102 sub 2 of the act. Third point, the review under section 102 sub 3 must be general. It cannot be centered on individual cases. That leads me into the fourth point, that doesn't mean that individual cases or discrete issues cannot trigger reviews. And it has triggered, and those points have triggered reviews. It simply means that, it simply means that, um, it, well, it explains why there was no deferral from the minister to the governor and council. Some of the issues uh, identified in the annual reports uh, or in the punctual memos that were prepared by Immigration, Refugee, Citizenship uh, Canada uh, concluded that the situation that was reviewed did not affect the protection against refoulement for, for STCA returnees. And that circles up the uh, Canada's position on the reasonableness of the continued designation. So my first point, uh, the scope of the agreement. The main impact is the perspective in which we must analyze the section 102 sub 2 factors. The second impact 
which I will deal uh, with last, is whether changes in the U.S. situation could warrant suspension or termination of the agreement. So, uh, tab five of our condensed book contains uh, extracts of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Regulations, mainly uh, the provisions implementing the agreement. And, and I draw from a question, uh, Justice Caracasanis, and, and that is the complete explanation to, to your question. Section 159.4 and Section 159.5 restrict the application of the ineligibility provision of Section 101.1e to those claimants who uh, claim protection coming in from the U.S. at the Canadian land border. So Ms. Zorik's explanation is that for practical reasons, it's much easier to implement the agreement, and she's totally right. Um, this also, well, this conclusion also stems from the preamble to the agreement itself. The preamble is reproduced in tab three of our condensed book. Uh, there's a paragraph starting with noting in the preamble, and I should refer to the definition of country of last presence in Article 1. Both refer to the scope of their agreement as being only those, this limited class of claimants who are coming in from the land border to claim protection. Now, this is determinative in the sense that when you, when you review the factual findings made by the federal court or review what the federal court of appeal said about those factual findings, we must ask this question. Is there evidence that STCA returnees and only them, when they are removed to the United States, are deprived or are generally deprived of the protection against refoulement? Um, and this is relevant for, for every discrete issues that the appellants have raised, detention, and in their factum, gender-based claims, domestic or gang violence. So that perspective is determinative. Now on the second point, section 102 sub 1a makes very clear that the criteria for the, for the designation of a safe third country, in this case, the United States, is restricted to the protection against refoulement. The formulation of Article 33 and, uh, of the Refugee Convention and the formulation of Article 3 of the Convention Against Torture are similar. They both protect a refugee protection claimant uh, claimant from being returned or expelled, and uh, both English versions even use uh, the French word refoulé, to a country where they would face persecution or torture. And that country, in this case, would be the United States. That uh, result or that outcome stems from the structure of Section 102. Section 102 sub 1 deals with one substantive criteria for designation of a safe third country. The second 
portion of section 102, sub, uh, well, subsection two. List mandatory factors to be considered, but in the view of designated, designating a country under section 102.1a. So section 102 factors are not standalone factors, are not determinative factors. Uh, they're not factors that if they're not present or not respected, would warrant de-designation or termination of the agreement, or that could have uh, warranted uh, no designation in the first place. Those four factors may or may not be present. They may be present to a certain extent. They are used by the Governing Council and they are assessed by the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration during the review under subsection 1023 uh, to determine whether there are change in, changes in policies or in practices or in the human rights record of the United States that could lead the GIC to consider uh, suspending the agreement or terminating the agreement under section 159.7 of the regulations. What this does not mean, it doesn't mean that the government of Canada is turning a blind eye uh, or condoning any human rights violations in the United States. It simply means that the minister and ultimately the governing council must assess them in the perspective of refoulement of STCA returnees. Otherwise, the result will be this. Uh, suppose, for example, that section 102 sub 2 factors are mandatory, are determinative of the designation of the United States. And if the U.S. ceases to be a party uh, to the Refugee Convention of, or, or the Convention Against Torture or terminates the agreement, the DSTCA, but nevertheless complies with non-refoulement obligations, has policies and practices respectful of Refugee Convention and Convention Against Torture, and has a clean human rights record, then the designation could be uh, said to be ordered to be unreasonable. So there's no textual indication in section 102 sub 2 that some of the factors, maybe sub uh, paragraph B or paragraph C, would be determinative and uh, both uh, paragraph A and paragraph D would not be. The text of, in English, I think it's clear in English that it is in French, the text of section 102 sub 2 A and D use the word weather. So it emphasizes the possibility that uh, the United States or any designated country would not be a party to uh, the Refugee Convention and the Convention Against Torture, would not be party to a safe third country agreement, but would nevertheless could, well, but nevertheless could be designated as a safe third country. In that respect, even though we do not take issues with most of the findings by the Federal Court and the Federal Court of Appeal, that's why we take issue with what we see as a misstatement of the law at paragraph 30 of the Federal Court of Appeal, which we understand uh, to state the law as section 102 sub 2 factors um, may warrant in themselves termination or suspension uh, of the agreement. We argue it is not so. It doesn't warrant termination or suspension unless it impinges 
on the U.S. ability to protect against refoulement. And this is also why we uh, suggest that Hathaway's proposition cannot be followed and the appellant's proposition cannot be followed. Um, Hathaway's proposition is that for a country to be designated, it must comply with every convention right. It has uh, adhered to but ratifying the Refugee Convention. Uh, it, it's not concerned with the formulation of the wording of the act. And even Hathaway himself uh, acknowledges that his position in international law uh, would not fit within the IRPA uh, scheme or, or system. On the third point, the general review. There are remedies in the United States. We have uh, listed them in our factum uh, that allow for refugee claimants to obtain protection at many levels uh, during their, their, their stay in the United States. Um, they could obtain protection under the asylum system, withholding of removal, deferral of removal. If the review was specific as opposed to general, that would mean that a refugee protection claimant in the United States could not be returned to the United States, even though the system affords protection for all these people. And those protection exist not only for the what we would call the, re the regular refugee claimants, those who do not have claims uh, which are grounded uh, on specific or, or uncommon grounds. Those protection exists for every, classes, or every class of claimants in the United States, no matter the grounds upon which their claim for, for protection relies. Uh, under Article 3 and Article 4 of the agreement, the United States have undertaken to review the need for protection of every SDCA returnee before they are being, re being removed from the United States. And there's no indication in the record that this undertaking has not been respected. Otherwise, if we, um, if the, 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 the review is not general, but, uh, if suspension is triggered by discrete or specific issues, that would mean, for example, well, we'll make a, compar a comparison with extradition here. Death penalty is still applicable in some American states. Uh, at, to this day, as far as I know, uh, 23 American states still have in their legislation, even though they do not apply it, they still have death penalty. Uh, at the federal level, you still you can still be uh, convicted for a capital crime. But Canada uh, has never stopped uh, from extraditing American citizens to the United States for the mere reason that death penalty is imposed in some places of the United States. If we adopt the appellant's position, that would mean that an American citizen extradited for a crime committed in New York, in the state of New York, which does not have the death penalty, or who is extradited for a federal non-capital offense could not be extradited to the United States simply because some states impose the death penalty. So by 
by adopting a general view of the problem, it enables the GIC and the minister to focus on the situation of the SCCA returnees and the treatment that they would face should they be returned to the United States. Now, I'm, I'm mindful that the death penalty may not be the best example, but it's being dealt with by section 159.6 of the regulations. Anyone uh, either in the United States or abroad facing death penalty will not be subjected to the agreement and his, his or her claim will not be ineligible. Uh, that these exceptions could be implemented through Article 6 of the agreement. Now, a very last point as to the actual review that has been made. The appellants emphasize that no review has been deferred to the governing council since 2004. Um, one of the justices raised that annual reviews have occurred since 2015 under the new monitoring framework. And we have uh, included in tab 11 of the condensed book, a list of memos. And I would uh, direct you in, uh, to numbers 10 and 11 and 19 and 20 that deal with very specific issues in view of reviewing the need to designate the U.S. as a safe third country. So this thorough process uh, enables two things. I, I'm mindful that my time is up and I'll just finish my sentence if you allow me, Mr. Chief Justice. This allows uh, the, the, the minister and um, uh, who's a, minister, a cabinet minister and the GIC, uh, if need be, to ascertain whether SCCA returnees would be at risk when being removed to the United States. Thank Subject you. to your questions, these would uh, conclude Canada's submissions. Justice Cote has one question and Justice Casirero as well. So, Madam Mayor, on another topic, what is your position of the appellant's uh, conclusion, let's say, regarding Section 15? Well, Section 15, to the extent that the record is complete, if there was sufficient evidence that Canadian authorities acted in a way that, it is, that is discriminatory, the court should rule upon it. There is no need to return the case to the federal court or federal court of appeal. So we should only rule findings. on it if we were ruling against you? No, no, okay. no, actually, no. No, but our argument on Section 15 is also that there's no evidence of Canadian action that would be discriminatory. And then that, um, that argument could be rejected outright. So you're saying we wouldn't need to make findings of fact? No. So we can decide it? Yes, you could decide it. Would we, is the rec, is, would we be able to decide it? For example, the matter, the case in the matter of AB and the debate in the materials as to whether when that case was vacated in 2021, it created a six-month problem for when it was exposing women, according to the appellants, to refoulement for gender-based violence that the Attorney General of the United States said wasn't, wasn't a defense. We would have to decide that. We would have to decide whether 
if there were a Section 15 violation, whether you've mounted in your materials the basis for a Section 1 argument, which is certainly hard to see in your materials, to, 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 to save that prima facie violation. So I think it's a, respectfully a bit quick to say we wouldn't have to make findings fact. In fact, my worry is that institutionally this court would be in a difficult position wading through those affidavits to try and make sense of them. Yes. My answer to that would be manifold. Uh, first, you have enough evidence to ascertain whether uh, Canadian authorities acted um, with discrimination. Second of all, we cannot isolate the decision in 2018 made in the, 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 uh, by the U.S. authorities in the matter of AB in 2018 from the, the whole of the refugee protection system in the United States. It's not because her claim for asylum let's say a woman's, uh, uh, a woman's claim for asylum could be dismissed, that she would be removed. And the evidence shows that there is a possibility not only to claim asylum, but if you're, there are two things here. If your claim for asylum is dismissed, you could challenge the immigration judge's decision before the Board of Immigration Appeal. And if you're unsatisfied, you're entitled to an appeal before an Article III court, an independent court, which is a circuit court, a federal court of appeal. Suppose, for example, that this process is unsuccessful, then that applicant can go through the whole of the immigration system in the United States and obtain either referral or deferral of removal. And all those cases not encompassed by one step of the American process could be encompassed by others because the criteria are different and they do not all involve a, a, a paying attention to the definition of a particular so social group. But in addition to that, the argument takes for granted that there's only one definition of a particular social group. And um, uh, the affidavit of, of Yale Law, which is in tab one of our contents book, and if, I, if I'm correct, the, the affidavit of Professor Hellbrunner also addresses that. There's not one definition of a particular social group. And I'll give you a Canadian example as an, an illustration. In the handbook, the UNHCR considers that being a member of the family what in itself warrants protection. And you will find that uh, from paragraphs 181 to 188. I believe they're, they're not in record and I, I don't believe they're in the book of authorities. Canada has never adopted such a stance. In Canada, a member of the family must show a reasonable, a, 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 a fear uh, of persecution or fear of torture for being a member of the family. So our definition of a particular social group does not match exactly what the UNHCR recommends. But that in itself is not discriminatory because the Refugee Convention gives state parties leeway to define some of the general principles uh, found in the, the Refugee Convention according to their national procedure. I'm, I'm going to rudely interrupt you. I, my, my question really was, 
are we institutionally equipped in this court to do this kind of work that you're speaking to right now, mindful of the fact that they're warring affidavits on the point that you're speaking to, and mindful to the, of the fact that the issue as to whether there's gender-based violence and that it's relevant to refoulement is, is and whether the Canadian authorities have, have any responsibility over that in the context that is ours is the matter of debate, and we have no we have none of the institutional guidance of a court of first instance which would sift through that evidence, make a decision, make findings of fact and law. That's my question. Not, it's not for you to give the answer to the, That's my question. Yes. Uh, sorry if I misunderstood your question. The fair court made findings of fact but did not analyze their impact on Section 15. But the way I understand the appellant's position is that the record is complete. Okay. Everything is there. They wouldn't add anything to it. The only thing missing from the federal court judgment is the reasoning as to why Section 15 or was or was not infringed. Very well. Thank you very much. Well, merci. Uh, Connor Bilfeld. Justices, advocates for the rule of law intervenes in this appeal on the role of international law in charter interpretation. That role is defined by three core principles. First, a court may consider international law only if it sheds light on the purpose of the charter right in question. Second, if it does, the court should determine the weight to be assigned to the particular source of international law. Third, the court should rely on international law only to support or confirm the result reached through a purposive interpretation. And to Justice Rowe's point, the adoption of international law does not automatically alter the meaning of the Charter. These three core principles share a common theme. As a uniquely Canadian document, the interpretation of the Charter must be rooted first and foremost in Canadian principles. Canadian sovereignty and the integrity of the Canadian Constitution require nothing less. Beginning with the first core principle, a court should consider international law only if it sheds light on the purpose of the charter right in question. As this court held in Hunter and Southam, the charter is a purposive document whose interpretation requires a purposive analysis. As this court explained in Big M Drug Mart, in determining the purpose of a particular charter right, a court may consider the character and larger objects of the Charter, the language chosen to articulate the right, the historical origins of the concepts enshrined, and the meaning and purpose of the other rights with which it is associated within the text of the Charter. This purpose of framework is firmly rooted in the text and history of the Charter. Within this framework, the only way in which international law may shed light on the purpose of a charter right is to elucidate the historical origins of the concepts enshrined. To illustrate, in ascertaining the purpose of the mobility rights protected by Section 6 of the Charter, this court in DeVito in Canada considered the, quote, international law inspiration for Section 6.1 of the Charter, which was Article 12 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. If the framers of the Charter drew inspiration from international law, Canadian courts can and should consider that inspiration. Otherwise, international law has no place to play, no role to play in the interpretive analysis. 
That is especially true if the international law postdated the Charter. Turning to the second core principle, if international law sheds light on the purpose of the Charter right, the, the court should determine the weight to be assigned to the particular source of international law. This weight will depend on two main factors. First, whether the international law is binding, and second, whether there are any contextual dif differences that distinguish the international law from the Charter right in question. On the first factor, not all international instruments are, tre are treated equal. As this court explained in Quebec Inc., while binding sources of international law attract, attract the presumption of conformity, non-binding sources have only persuasive value and are entitled to much less weight. On the second factor, courts should account for any contextual differences, whether historical, social, political, or legal, that may shape the meaning of international law. And turning to the third and final core principle, when interpreting the Charter, Canadian courts should rely on international law only to support or confirm the result reached through a purpose of interpretation. As this court explained in Quebec Inc., international law plays only a limited role in charter interpretation. It cannot be used to define the scope of the charter as this would compromise the integrity of the Canadian constitutional structure and Canadian sovereignty. Indeed, it would, it would turn the hierarchy of laws in Canada upside down. In sum, international law's role in the interpretation of the Charter is limited by Canada's constitutional structure and by con Canadian sovereignty. While international law may in some cases shed light on the purpose of a particular Charter right, it cannot supplement or supplant the text of the Charter. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Any reply, uh, Mr. Brower? pleases the court, I'll be delivering the appellant's reply, Justice Wagner. All right. Okay. Um, Justice Karakatsanis, you asked a question about the percentage. We've given you the statistics at tab 34 of the condensed book. It's approximately 3.5%. On the question of matter AB and whether or not this court can and should decide the Section 15 issue, a couple of points of clarification. One. The decision in matter AB3, which is the most recent one, vacated the 2018 decision in order to, and they say this expressly, pave the way for rulemaking. Those rules have yet to be promulgated. So the state of the law right now is the state of the law as it was when this case started. And there is ample evidence on that. And as I indicated earlier, um, there was ample consensus that the interpretation adopted in the U.S. was inconsistent with the Refugee Convention. In that respect, Justice Kassir, I just wanted to respond to the comment that was made about warring affidavits. There are not warring affidavits. The respondents did not call an expert on gender-based persecution in the United States, and their expert, the only expert they called on this issue, gave a bird's-eye view of U.S. law and specifically stated that he is not an expert on the Refugee Convention or its requirements, and he recognized that the appellant's two experts are leading authorities on this question. As to um, the mayor's submission that there is flexibility in the interpretation of particular social group, indeed, it's a, it's a provision that 
there is some gray area, right? It's not always clear, but the fact that there's gray area doesn't negate the existence of black and white. And there is broad consensus that the US interpretation of the term is inconsistent with the convention. Well, what, what is this broad consensus I hear about? Where, from whence cometh that? The United Nations High Commission for Refugees, the appellants experts, both of whom are leading authorities in the field, the parliamentary subcommittee that reviewed the regulations in 2003 and the federal court's decision in 2007 on this very question. In other words, the, 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 the case on repeal. No, the, the prior case that was overturned on standing grounds, but there was no interference with the findings of fact. Okay. Um, I want to talk briefly about this question of safety valves and how it fits in, uh, in light of what my um, friends opposite have had to say. Um, notably, they did not deny our assertion that all of the mechanisms depend entirely on the availability of a deferral or a stay, right? And we talked about why that standard is insufficient in this context. Contrary to what uh, Ms. Zorik said, um, ABC did not benefit from a deferral. The CBSA declined to defer long enough to allow the federal court to hear it, and the federal court had to intervene. As for the Holmesy family, contrary to what Ms. Zorik stated, their application from the very outset was a constitutional challenge. That was the serious issue on which they got the stay. So if the court denies the appeal and finds the regime constitutional, that safety valve is effectively closed. Justice Kassir, to your comment about the uh, exceptions in the regulations being tailored to the applicant's circumstances, they're tailored to the applicant's circumstances in some respects, mostly whether or not they have family in Canada and therefore a good reason for coming here, but they're not tailored to the circumstances on the critical question of whether those people have access to effective protection. They have, the, the exceptions have nothing to do with that question. Okay, in terms of, I, I think I understand my friend's position a little more clearly now, in terms of where safety valves fit in the analysis and how they fit into the analysis, the, the place to begin is the judgment in Bedford at paragraphs 126 to 127. The court is very clear at paragraph 127 what has to be established under section seven. And then at paragraph 126, they describe what falls for consideration under section one. What has to be established for section seven is the breach or the reasonable likelihood of a breach. That's happened here. It's not just, it's not just a, a foreseeable possibility of a breach. There is evidence of the breaches in issue. Therefore, according to the logic of Bedford, safety valves fall for consideration under section one. However, regardless of where they fit into the analysis. Well, reasonable, this, like, reasonable likelihood connotes a remoteness analysis, does it not? And, and would the safety valves not fit in there? I realize your friend on opposite uh, doesn't agree with that, but, but reasonable likelihood still, that, that, that bespeaks a causation analysis. No, I'm, I'm sorry if I misspoke and said reasonable likelihood. The, the test is sufficient causal connection and reasonable foreseeability, which is exactly the test that was applied by the federal court here. If we're going to Bedford though, um, I mean, Bedford talks about overbreadth being where a law is so broad that it includes some conduct that bears no relation to its purpose, which means we have to identify the purpose, not of the act as a whole, but of the impugned provision. And it seems to me that the impugned provision deals with, as stated in the Safe Third Country Agreement, to promote the orderly handling of asylum applications 
by the responsible party in the principle of burden sharing. So it isn't necessarily, if we identify the purpose with, with precision, it seems to me, and as identified in the agreement itself, um, it seems to me we may be in a very different situation. Uh, absolutely, everything turns on the question of what the objective of the provision is. The parties are essentially in agreement on this issue, which is why nobody um, addressed it. And the objective, as has been identified in the prior litigation and as the appellants assert, is to share responsibility for refugee protection in accordance with Canada's international obligations. We've given you some of the uh, legislative history documents at tab 35 and 36 that speak further to that and um, a more fulsome reading of the preamble as well as the objectives of the act support that interpretation. So the, the overbreath argument is if you are applying the ineligibility in a blanket fashion without regard for people's circumstances and the result of that is that there are people who do not have access to effective protection in the United States to whom the provision is being applied, then its application to them is overbroad. Thank you very much. Uh, one more, one last question by Justice Kilkefranis. What about the argument that it's sufficient if the safety valves are legally available and it's rather than practically available? Yeah, that's exactly where I was about to, to go and I'll finish on that point. So in, in PHS, right, the safety valve was a provision that allowed an application for an exemption of a provision before you put yourself at risk of it being applied to you. That's PHS. In Apalunapa and Noor, the safety valves at issue were prosecutorial discretion or the approval of the Attorney General, right? And those were built into the process. You can't get a conviction by indictment without an exercise of prosecutorial discretion. You couldn't prosecute under Section 117 in Apple and Apple without the, the Minister of Justice approving it. Those were built into the process. They were necessary components of it. And still, this court said, that's not good enough because if you have a law on the books that depends on a favorable exercise of discretion in order to avoid unconstitutional results, it should be struck down. And that's what they this court decided in, in Noor and in Apple and Napa, and we've cited numerous cases in our, in our factum that address the role of discretion in preserving the constitutionality of statutes. So the issue here, the safety valves and issue here don't even meet the criteria of, of the ones that were being discussed in Noor and Apple and Napa. They're not part of the process. They're outside of the process, right? And the, the courts, to get directly to your question, Justice Karakatsanis, it's not the role of the court to redesign the administrative regime that's going to apply at the border. There is no evidence before the court as to the feasibility of doing it one way or the other, the experience that would be necessary, the cost of doing it one way or the other. The, the role of the court is to send the government back to the drawing board so that they can design a process that actually has All safety right. valves. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank counsel for their uh, submissions. The court will take the case under advisement.